right, well, good morning. Welcome, everyone. We're going to get started. Um, and so I'm just going to thank you. Uh, and also welcome to our live audience. I'm just going to welcome you to Hudson Institute. And then the Lithuanian ambassador, Rolandas Krisiunas, will make a few remarks. And, uh, and then I'll make a few very brief remarks. And then in uh, about 10 minutes, we'll start with a live feed of uh, Judas Jerkonis from Vilnius, directly from Vilnius. So, Rolandas. Thank you, Charles, and uh, of course, I also want to welcome you uh, to Hudson Institute, uh, and I'm pleased that the embassy is co-hosting uh, this wonderful event, and uh, that the team we will be discussing, uh, Lutwena, would like to be associated with, because we perceive it as a very serious uh, issue. And of course, um, uh, thanking uh, Charles for this good initiative uh, on the kleptocracy, I would like to also thank the Hudson Institute for Shelters, this good initiative that provides uh, the, um, uh, the roof for, for, for this team of Charles, and um, I think it's very important what, we, uh, what Charles is doing. We are, today we are talking about a number of threats. It's always popular to, to, to speak about threats because we need to take care of the threats. You need to feel safe, you know, to create and work and prosper. Uh, of course, mostly, most of the people think uh, when we speak about threats, uh, about military ones, you know, and uh, yes, there are new ones, uh, even related to the military. We are talking about cyber threats, which Nate also said that it's a very important domain in Warsaw. We need to look at it because it's one of the tools to fight the wars. We are talking about info wars, uh, but uh, all of those tools uh, are very useful ones in the toolbox of any kleptocracy, because for kleptocracy, for self-preservation purposes, any tool is good. And all those tools we could observe in, uh, in the neighborhood of Russia, for example, and we living in the Baltics, of course, we've seen it already for a number of years. It's not something new for us. We, we saw those tools being applied uh, to us. And um, of course, but uh, one of the things which could, all of them are visible, you know, to some extent, at least when they are used. But there is one uh, thing that, uh, which is very important to pay attention, which is not so easy to notice. You know, you don't hear the knock on the door and you open, somebody slips in, you know. So uh, the corruption and kleptocracy could slip in and it takes, it's a very slow process, you know. It could take over institutions with the time if it's not tendered. It could take over countries if it's not tendered. And uh, that's why we have the spread of kleptocracy in the neighboring countries. But it's not, uh, we don't need to fool ourselves, you know, that uh, the kleptocracy could travel only so many miles, you know, it could travel thousands of miles. It could slip uh, in the U.S. and the, the ocean is not protecting you. But, but is there is any medicine for this? Yes, of course. And one of those is strong institutions, which we pride ourselves in the West, that we have strong institutions, and that's a prerequisite uh, for, for us to be able to fight those. Of course, uh, first of all, acknowledgement that it's a threat, that it's important. Uh, and um, also transparency, and it could be very painful, because of course it's and shameful. How you could admit, you know, because usually uh, if it's already in, how you could admit? It's very difficult once you let it in, you know, and uh, let it flourish and prosper uh, in your country. The kleptocracy, it's very difficult to admit it, so it's shameful. But uh, without transparency, you cannot fight it. And that's it takes strength to admit it for the countries that it's a, we do have an issue. We need to fight for this. And uh, this is the last one I would say, we need partners. 
I hope that there will be one day when we will say there is a global pushback from the kleptocracy, you know. But for that, you need so many initiatives like this one, Charles, you know, <laughs> for, for us to be able to say in some years, yes, there is a global pushback on the kleptocracy. And um, ending my brief notes, uh, I will just stress uh, in Lithuania, we attach a great attention to this issue. And Charles, you could always count, and Hudson Institute could always count on us to support any endeavors for you, steps you are making in acknowledging kleptocracy, trying to come up with the tools to fight it off, and transparency you're putting on these issues. Thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to very interesting panels today. Well, thank you, Rolanda, for beautifully setting the scene. Um, and uh, at Hudson, we're, we're big Lithuania fans, so the event today, as you may have noticed, is heavy duty uh, in terms of uh, Lithuania. And um, uh, we consider it really to be an exemplary country and a little democracy at this point that we can probably learn a lot from. Uh, so let me just say a few words about the kleptocracy initiative, and then we'll get into the uh, first group of speakers. Um, you had in a, a handout some of the policy papers that we've put out. There's a very interesting piece by Tom Firestone that uh, Baker McKenzie did for us, and he's a partner there, on how a kleptocracy could de-kleptocratize, and it covers quite a bit of ground. And then there's a, a piece by Oliver Bullough that covers the whole issue of enablers, Western enablement of kleptocracy. Uh, very interesting piece. And then tomorrow, we hope some of you will join us again um, tomorrow morning at 9.30 for the launch of the Kleptocracy Curse by Ben Judah. And this is a sort of overall view and uh, discourse on the whole kleptocracy issue, um, its implications, and also with some ideas of what we can do about it. And uh, in particular, one critical policy idea, which will be uh, explained tomorrow. Uh, in terms of following what we do, we put out a sort of online magazine at kleptocracyinitiative.org, which you can link to from the Hudson website or go directly to kleptocracyinitiative.org. And the idea is in about an hour, you can read absolutely everything that's on the site and have an overview. It's an intro to the whole issue. Uh, a big part of what we've been doing is showcasing expertise and thought leadership on this issue of kleptocracy. And so there, there's been a series of events since we started this initiative two years ago. And um, we hope you'll, you'll check on what's upcoming. Very easy to find off the Hudson website. And then uh, lastly, we have some, an archive of uh, primary source material. And this is something we've been working on um, almost since the beginning. And these are primary source documents of various sorts, including court cases, which are illustrative of the problem of kleptocracy. And it focuses on the Eurasia region right now, but we're also going to add uh, Asia soon. So thank you uh, very much. And then we're going to start with this live feed uh, from Vilnius. And Karen Duisha is going to moderate this first panel, uh, which will come up, I guess, after Liuda speaks. Uh, and, um, and then we'll follow the program. As you have it, Ivaras um, Abramavicius will speak via live feed also, and then Ben Judah will be a respondent to what he has to say, and then we'll move into the third and last panel, which I will moderate. Thank you all for being here, and uh, we'll uh, roll live from Vilnius. Thank you.
Uh, all right, um, Mr. Leudis, uh, you are you are now live. Thank you very much. So, good morning, everyone. Um, really, a great pleasure being uh, a part of the initiative and uh, being able to share my thoughts. Um, so, uh, let me firstly briefly introduce myself and uh, share, you know, at least a couple of alternatives uh, from which I will be sharing my views. So um, I'm Ludas, uh, I'm leading the specific uh, service line within Ernst & Young. So um, this is called Fraud Investigation and Dispute Services. Um, and my main duty for the last 12 years was really to uh, help the companies to combat fraud and corruption uh, across uh, the Baltic states. Uh, so Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, including and uh, both the private companies and the public sector uh, companies as well. So I hope that I will be able to reflect on really the actual uh, fraud and corruption risks uh, from my perspective there. Uh, it's also important to mention that uh, within Vilnius University, the Institute of um, uh, International Relationships and Political Science, um, I'm really focusing on the topic of transparency from the academical perspective. And my PhD thesis is really focused on the impact of corporate governance, impact of transparency uh, to the results, uh, to the efficiency management, uh, management efficiency of the state-owned enterprises. So I will try to balance out uh, those two views um, in my short uh, presentation. So firstly, um, just uh, for the background, I think that if we would look at the um, uh, history of the independent Lithuania starting from 1990s, I think that we could obviously see um, some political parties which were uh, and still are heavily influenced by the uh, uh, you know kleptocracy as such, um, and it's it's I, I think that it's very public. And if you would look at uh, our some uh, uh, very well known political parties such as the Labour Party, such as the Order Order and Justice. We would clearly see that uh, these uh, were established or run either by the politicians who have uh, clear links, business links to, to the um, our eastern neighbor, or uh, these were really polit politicians who were tightly linked to the um, businessmen from that part of the region. Um, and we have really had precedence of, of even the um, president himself being impeached uh, because of those links, because of the uh, lack of transparency on the really national level politics uh, which, which were run from his side. So this is one to remember, one to acknowledge, and um, we are now, um, as Lithuania, um, ready and, and setting there for the second part of the par parliamentarian elections. And even here today, with after the 26 years of the independence, we see that there are new parties coming in, which still have those uh, connections, either business-wise or the political-wise, uh, with the eastern neighbor. And this is something, again, for every citizen, for every uh, Lithuanian to think when, when they're placing their votes there. Now, coming back to the, um, maybe let, let me start with the insights from my academical research. So, I, I, uh, Lithuania, uh, in 2010, initiated a reform of the state-owned enterprises, bringing the corporate govern governance principles to the management of the state-owned enterprises, 
And I think that it would be uh, fair to say that this was not an easy task uh, for the government to implement those, and we're still on the path implementing those. Nevertheless, uh, the academical uh, research results show that there is a clear link between the transparency, between the better corporate governance, and uh, the independent, non-politicized uh, boards and management bodies with the better results of the state-owned enterprises. Uh, so I think that th this has to be a very good motive, and this is, should be a very clear motive for any political parties, for any governments, to really look wisely at uh, the state-owned enterprises as an instrument which could help uh, the nation, which would help the state to be more efficient, to have better re returns uh, to the state budget, and use, use those wisely, right? Um, I would also state that currently the uh, current reform is focused on the uh, state-owned enter enterprises on the national level, but I think that if we would go down to the level of the municipalities, um, we would see that um, the disconnect between those two reforms is really huge, and there is uh, plenty of work to be done on the municipalities level, where the influence of the politicians is really much, much greater if uh, compared to the state-level enterprises as such. Now, um, the third uh, moment which I wanted to share with you is really coming from the fraud investigation practice uh, that, that uh, I am with Ernst & Young. So, um, I, I would say that there are a couple of messages at least uh, to be shared. Ernst & Young, on an annual basis, uh, makes the, the fraud surveys, uh, which uh, the purpose of which is really to understand what uh, risks, fraud risks, we do have um, in the region, uh, globally, in mail level, country-wise. And I think that if, if you would look at the pattern that we would be um, analyzing those in years, we would see that uh, the Baltic states uh, did a great job uh, improving the overall image, improving, I would say, not only the image and the perception, but I would uh, think that it's, it would be fair to say that it's the actual situation of fighting fraud and corruption on, uh, you know, on country-wise. Now, Estonia was also always uh, seen to be better off in terms of fighting corruption, both on the EY indexes, but also on the indexes of the Transparency International. But I was always raising this question, why and what are the reasons? And my main concern that both for the Baltic states, but Lithuania as well, we were very good in implement, uh, in, uh, how, how should I put it, uh, in really writing good policies and procedures, uh, good, uh, you know, good type of design of, of uh, how we manage uh, corruption risks both on the state level and the enterprise level. But I really have doubts when you go inside the companies and you test the effectiveness of those controls, whether they actually work. And the uh, investigations, the um, uh, operational audits that uh, we always uh, make on, on behalf of our clients, uh, end up with one uh, single, I would say, um, point that yes, we do have the policies and procedures, and yes, we do have the, um, uh, the picture that we have the setup in place, 
But the, the real question is whether it actually works. So this is one, and who can influence those and, and turn the blind eye on something potentially bad happening within the enterprise level or the state level? And I think that we are coming back to the first point, politicization and uh, political influence. And again and again and again, if, if we see the political affiliations with the companies, with the management of the companies, we really see money being taken out of those companies for different purposes, whether these would be uh, expenses, whether this would be charity, whether this would be really funneling those uh, funds to the other sources. So this is really something that is, is not that, um, you know, rare in our world still. So um, with uh, uh, another point on the geographical level, I think that you can really see the pattern that the more West you are, the better alliances you have with the Western economies. And this is not only talking about the political affiliations, but also the links between the companies um, with the Western world, whether this would be export-wise, whether these would be the international investment to Lithuania. We see that the standards of transparency of corporate governance within those companies and within those industries are much better and uh, much more effective. Now, so, uh, which would then lead to my one point, uh, maybe a couple of points. I think that Lithuania entering OECD, entering, you know, and integrating to the uh, uh, Western economies and the tra transatlantic as um, associations, I think that we should have a second step, not only putting this on paper that we comply and we want to implement an anti-corruption um, measures there, but we have to be very effective in implementing those. And without testing, without proper um, verification of what we have on paper, I think that this would not be you know, actually implemented. So, and this should be the concern of the government to really implement those on a state level, to really make the enforcement activities much more active as, uh, as we have it today but also for the companies themselves, whether those would be private or public, to really care about not only the paper, the window dressing uh, exercise, but really the actual effectiveness. So um, and until we align those two levels, the state um, overview and state's uh, opinion, and caring about the uh, level of transparency, but also the companies really being uh, active proactive and working together with the states to make it better, I think that it's only then when we would have the real uh, and actual effect for the, uh, for the economy and for the state of uh, Lithuania. So, um, so th this is my wish and th this is my uh, main, I would say, um, point to note uh, for any governmental officials, politicians, but also the managers of the companies that it's really a time to make not only the paper and not only the signature that we comply, but really live the values and for the state to really use the instrument of both testing uh, and the carrot to really test that it actually works. So um, I think that uh, I would conclude on my intro remarks here.
Um, should you have any questions, and if you would like to really uh, me to elaborate on any of the ideas, I would be more than happy doing that. But sadly, we don't have that time. I think it's a very good demonstration of the extent to which uh, there is deep knowledge and engagement on this issue in the Baltic states. And it, it's, it's not because we want to help little Lithuania, but because Lithuania is on the front line of this issue, the Baltic states are on the front line, and they are well positioned in terms of intellectual and practical expertise to deal with this problem, because the problem is significant in Washington, D.C., but it's even more significant in uh, the Baltic states. So I'm Karen Duisha, and um, I think, Charles, you want to, do you want to have any questions for Yudas now? We'll hold it all to the end. Okay. So I'm Karen Duisha, and um, I'm joined in this panel uh, by Daniel Carson and Marius Larinovicius from Lithuania. And I'm going to say a few words uh, about kleptocracy, and then we'll turn to Marius and, and end with uh, Daniel Carson from Kroll International. So both today and tomorrow, we're going to hear presentations in which the word kleptocracy is used a lot. And it's something that, that I've written about quite extensi extensively. And I think it's important for us to take hold of the fact that, that uh, kleptocracy is a system of government. It is not just a few corrupt officials in any given country. It's not just a return to the czarist area when, when uh, uh, officials were allowed to steal according to their rank. This is a system of government, and it's, a, it's now becoming an international system of government which is being exported. I talk about kleptocracy as a, as a regime. A kleptocracy is a regime that nationalizes the risk and privatizes the reward of economic activity in return for loyalty and silence. So what's important about this is that it has a huge political import. Kleptocracies don't exist in democratic systems. They, they, kleptocratic influences can bring down democracy, but democracy, if protected and promoted, can defeat kleptocracies. So kleptocracies have a dynamic in which they lead naturally to the establishment of an authoritarian system because loyalty and silence cannot be maintained uh, in a democratic system, and only loyalty and silence can uh, cement the, the basic features of a kleptocracy. I think it's possible, uh, but we're going to discuss this tomorrow with Ben Judah, it is possible that authoritarian systems could be established that aren't kleptocracies. I always think of uh, Hitler's uh, fascism as one such example. But I think it's also possible that in an era of globalization, kleptocracy is more likely to be a driver of such regimes. And that 
the fascism or the ultranationalism that often emerges in such regimes, and we see that emerging in Russia, is the glasses, it's the glove behind the kleptocratic intent. But at, at the core of these regimes, in an era of globalization, is kleptocracy. Kleptocracies today operate on standard economic principles in which those who operate the system want to minimize the risk and maximize the rewards to them and to the regime that they've established. They want to be able to continue to maraud through their own home systems while at the same time protecting their gains by using the rule of law in other states. That's why the city of London and Wall Street are critical components to the maintenance of kleptocracy today. It is why the Russian state does not need to establish the rule of law. The establishment of the rule of law diminishes risks, but it also diminishes rewards. And the Russian state gets to have both maximization of rewards and the continuation of marauding because they can protect their assets in offshore accounts that are established and maintained by Western rule of law regimes. So turning quickly to the Baltics, the Baltic states are particularly vulnerable, particularly vulnerable because they are particularly targeted by kleptocracies. Why? They are, they are a plum prize. They are in the EU. They are in the EU. I'm not talking here about NATO. I'm talking about the EU. So that you have three new states in which the banking, fraud, control systems are the newest. They are the newest. They are subject to capture and um, I wasn't going to mention the cases that uh, Ludis did, to be polite, but it is the case that even in Lithuania, which is trying so hard to protect itself from kleptocratic influence, party leaders have had and continue to have some uh, links to Russian interests, and even the president of Lithuania was impeached for his economic ties to Lithuania, uh, to Russia. So here you have a, ca a, a case of a country that is fighting hard against this, but it is not going to succeed unless the West keeps its, uh, or puts its eye on the ball of the centrality of this issue. It is absolutely central that if you have three states in uh, the EU that are under prime pressure for capture by Russian interests, uh, a country of 11 time zones compared with um, a state of one, it's going to be quite difficult and it's going to be a continuing problem. And it's a continuing problem not least because it's often difficult in the Baltic states themselves to understand where the money is coming from. So, of course, uh, let's say relatives of Putin are not going to open bank accounts in Lithuania. 
But how do relatives of Putin or cronies of his regime nevertheless get to the Baltic states? They set up offshore accounts in the West. Those offshore accounts give loans to companies in, in Moldova, Moldovan judges authorize the validity of these loans to these now Western offshore companies, and money is paid into, Lithuania, uh, into Latvian, in this case, into Latvian banks, and now that money is in Latvia. The scale of the problem, of course, is not in known, but people who've done the best research on this uh, organizations like OCCRP estimate that Moldova alone, whose GDP, annual GDP, is not in excess of $8 billion, was subjected to money, money laundering from Russia, which originated in Russia, including by a relative of Vladimir Putin, uh, in the years 2010 to 2014 of $20 billion. So two and a half times the annual GDP of Moldova was moved through this country and it went into a Baltic state. This is just the money that went to Latvia. Just the money that went to Latvia. And we know in the case of Moldova that a billion dollars uh, disappeared from a Moldovan bank. So they're not just part of a scheme through which, in which money passes through Moldova but doesn't leave its footprint. A uh, billion dollars was stolen from uh, Moldova. In other words, you know, a very high percentage of the annual GDP. And in Lithuania itself, a billion dollars was stolen from two banks that collapsed and the owners of those banks went to Russia, disappeared back into Russia. So this, this is a huge problem because you're talking about states with GDPs that are um, small and states that are rather fragile. So it's not just a, a challenge for companies uh, seeking to establish businesses in Lithuania or in the Baltic states, but it's a challenge for um, the West. We have, we have uh, NATO allies in the Baltics. We will soon have combat brigades in the Baltics. And therefore, we have security interests in the stability of the Baltics. And as we've seen in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine, step one for Russia in these cases is to weaken these states to divide them, to, to create compatriots, uh, some of whom are unwittingly being used to pour money, illegal money, into political parties, to create division, to bring, to affect the stability of these states. And this is a very dangerous problem for all of us. So I do think that kleptocracy and the serious study of kleptocracy and its threat is, a, is vital in the United States because we are tied to the national security of 
the, the Baltic states through NATO uh, membership. And with that, I'll turn the floor over to Marius Larinovicius. Well, thank you, Ka thank you Karen. <clears throat> uh, let me start uh, from saying uh, how proud I am being a part of uh, the team of Kleptocracy Initiative because um, I really think that kleptocracy is the threat which well underestimated in the West. I would say it's a part of the uh, phenomena we are talking much about uh, these days, uh, which is called hybrid warfare. <coughs> um, I would use Russian terms because uh, they are talking about total war, not uh, some kind of hybrid warfare or other uh, tools of, of war, but we are talking about total war. So, so <coughs> I would say that kleptocracy is a part of this total war against the West and the threat of kleptocracy is much underestimated. And uh, Baltic states could be seen as a case study for this, uh, and I will try to, to, to explain that in, in my presentation. I believe uh, that uh, most of you would agree that Baltic states uh, should be considered as uh, success stories in this part of the world, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, or even Eastern Europe, uh, because uh, the scope of our reforms and, and the success of our reforms is, is really um, the one uh, we can be proud of. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we should admit that uh, constant and consistent attempts of political takeover of Baltic states by Russia has been made uh, all over these years. And uh, several uh, examples were already mentioned by Ludas and uh, Karen, but I would go further and uh, name it as a systematic and, as I said, uh, constant and consistent attempts, uh, which uh, poses a threat of a real takeover of the, of the countries. And it's not only about buying political parties and political elites, uh, which is already publicly admitted by some uh, Russian foreign policy makers, such as Sergei Karaganov. Uh, in the interview last summer for Spiegel, he admitted that uh, the only thing uh, the, he criticized uh, Russian foreign policy uh, but uh, he said the only thing uh, we were involved in was buying political elites in this, uh, in this part of the world. Uh, so, um, but it's not only that. Uh, we should think about uh, business uh, with um, Russia, which still is considered as a normal activity both in, in Baltic states and, and the West. Because uh, business, opportunity, business opportunities offered uh, to some uh, individuals in uh, the Baltic states uh, shows that uh, it ends up in uh, somehow, accidentally, it end, ends up in 
in, in, in power in these countries. And I will name uh, several names from, from uh, these all three countries. Uh, one was already uh, has been named uh, our impeached President Paxos. Uh, the other one is our former uh, economy minister, uh, Mr. Uspaskich. In Latvia, they had uh, former prime minister, Andrei Schele, uh, former prime minister, Andrei Schlesers, uh, current uh, leader of ruling coalition, uh, Mr. Lembergs, the mayor of Ventspils uh, in Estonia, Mr. Osinovsky, who is one of the uh, wealthiest people uh, in Estonia and the biggest fin financial supporter of the ruling Social Democratic Party. His son is a leader of this Social Democratic Party. And Mr. Sarasars, who is uh, suspended mayor of, of Tallinn. So what unites all these uh, people? Uh, there are several things which really unites them. Uh, it's uh, corruption scandals. It's business with Russia. It's uh, business opportunities offered, which is very important, business opportunities offered to them by Russia. And all of them ended up in power in all these countries. So I'm talking not about some just ordinary politicians. I'm talking about the former president of Lithuania, former prime ministers of Latvia, uh, and people which have a real political influence in Estonia. So um, the conclusion sh which should be drawn from all of this is that there is no such thing as an independent business with kleptocratic regimes. We still think in the West that uh, there are good guys in Russia, good oligarchs who can fight Putin or uh, even uh, make uh, some uh, small coup in Russia and change the situation. But it's uh, an illusion. All these people are controlled and uh, if you are doing a business with kleptocratic regime, it's, it doesn't matter even if it's Russia or not, you are always taking a risk of uh, a political influence. Because these regimes are, by definition, functioning in a way where business is just a tool for political in influence. Um, there the other thing I would like to mention is that, uh, to my mind, we make a mistake when we think that it started with Putin. Um, we tend to think that uh, the regime we have in Russia now was started by Putin, and Putin brought all these people to power. In, and if Putin goes, something can change. I would argue that it started much, much earlier, and Karen uh, put it uh, excellently in, in, in her book. Uh, and even this kleptocratic activity started in the uh, 90s, at least in the 90s. Uh, we should think about KGB money, uh, which uh, Daniel could uh, talk about. Uh, we should think about uh, Communist Party money, 
we should think in terms of uh, testimony to uh, U.S. Senate by Karen von Gerhard Thompson, uh, which put it like uh, Mr. Khodorkovsky, who, as most uh, people in the West think, uh, is a good guy in, in Russia, was involved, allegedly, was involved in money laundering in, uh, I mean, KGB money laundering in United States. It's not about some other countries in United States. It's uh, in a testimony uh, for the Senate uh, of Karen von Gerhard Thompson. We should think in terms of uh, Mr. Lemberg's, uh, which I already mentioned, um, started business with Timchenko. I believe all of you know the name of Timchenko, who is uh, the, one of the closest associates with, uh, of Vladimir Putin. So uh, we should think why some guy from Latvia uh, would be allowed to become a shareholder of a company, Urals. I really believe Karen know about the company because it was one of the, these important companies in, in the very beginning. So Mr. Lembergs was allowed to, to get some 10% of shares uh, of uh, Ural's chemicals uh, with people uh, like Timchenko and all the other KGB guys from Moscow. And we should think in terms of uh, Latvian banks, uh, which uh, at least some of, of these stories are documented, not, not all of these, but, but at least some of them were, are documented. Uh, so at least some of Latvian banks were established by K KGB as well. So, uh, but it's not only about uh, these banks which were established by KGB, it's about uh, the other guys, uh, oligarchs from, not only from uh, Russia, but from Ukraine and other countries, which established these banks exactly for the purpose of laundering money. So um, it's, it, it's really, um, it started really long, long before Putin came to power. And it's a, a long-term strategy how to make this influence over all these countries. And as I said, Baltic states should be just a study case how it works. But exactly the same, they are working all over the world, including United States. Uh, the other thing I would like to mention, it's not just about uh, politics. Uh, this uh, is both top-down and bottom-up approach. I mean top-down when they buy politicians or somehow um, make them uh, to end up in power in, in, in uh, one or the other country. and expect them to change the political environment, the economical environment, and attitude to Russia uh, or some other kleptocratic country uh, from their top political positions. But at the same time, uh, they try to uh, change our values. They try to change our business culture uh, by uh, influencing uh, just uh, ordinary businessmen. Uh, and we witness such a situations in, in, in Baltic states as well, 
when uh, our businessmen are just privately, at least privately, they say, you know, Russia's, Russian system is much better. It's, it's much better to do business in, in, in Russia. We should uh, maybe take an example from Russia. And that's very important and, and serious problem because it's really about our values. Um, David Kramer uh, has a really good expression uh, which several days ago in Vilnius I was told that uh, by Andrei Ilarionov, former advisor to Putin, that it's it actually it's his expression, but uh, never mind. Uh, the expression is that Rush, uh, it's not uh, gas or oil which is the biggest export of Russia. The biggest export of Russia is uh, corruption. And it's really a strategic thing. It's not, not like uh, just a tool of uh, personal enrichment. Uh, this is done uh, on purpose and they really want you to, to make us in the West, it doesn't matter if it's Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, or United States, look like them and act like them. It's, and it's not just because of poli political influence, it's because of um, competition. Kleptocracy can't stand the competition with a free market economy. That's very, very clear. And when they think in terms of this kind of competition, the only way they can succeed, they need to corrupt our business and our societies to make them <laughs> likewise. Uh, and the last point I would like to uh, raise is that sometimes it's not even about defending uh, Russian interests. It's more about defending kleptocratic interests. And we have several examples of that. I really believe that when uh, some uh, Lithuanian or Latvian uh, politicians or businessmen are trying uh, to defend uh, their own interests, uh, they are at the same time, they are defending Russian interests. And I will uh, give you some examples. Uh, Lithuania uh, has been praised for the reform of uh, energy sector. Uh, but at the same time, I would say that inside Lithuania, we uh, have a very le legitimate question why it's only now after 25 years of independence. And the answer is very simple. Because uh, all the lobby of energy sector always resisted all these reforms. Why they, are, why they resisted this? Because of their personal interests, which were related to business in Russia. And the conclusion is that if they are just defending their own interests, it's in the interest of Russia. That's how it works. Let's take Latvia. Uh, it's the process of the reform of banking sector is so painful in Latvia 
it's, it's, it's really different in Estonia and Lithuania, but, but, but in Latvia it's really painful. Why so? Because these people have their own interests in keeping this uh, corrupt and non, uh, non-Western system of, of banking. I would put it like this. And that's, again, that serves Russian interests. Uh, let's take uh, the failed privatization of Estonian railway. Again, uh, US company privatized Estonian railway. Who was behind uh, the all attempts uh, to, 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 to make this uh, privatization a failed one? People with interest in uh, this business in Estonia, which have all kind of business relations with Russia. Again, it's not like Russia influenced that. It was influenced by Estonians, which has this kleptocratic interests uh, and, uh, and uh, relations with Russia. So I would like to stop there, uh, just saying that it's, it's not uh, something we should think like, like, like a coincidence, it's just uh, many, many coincidences. It's a long-time strategy. Uh, kleptocratic Russia wants uh, uh, want to uh, imply, uh, imply on us, and it's a threat which is well underestimated in the West. So I would like to uh, thank Kleptocracy Initiative again for raising this question and I think that Baltic states really could be a case study for this. Thank you, Marius. Uh, our third speaker is Daniel Klausen, who is professionally involved in, oh. Our third speaker is Daniel Carson, who's professionally involved as the chairman of Coal International in looking for the money. Um, and any of us who's studied this um, issue, as I have for a long time, know that coal has been very involved in being hired by different countries or organizations to investigate um, fraud and corruption in, in, other, in other states or by other people. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in hearing what he has to say. Thank you, Karen. Good morning. Uh, the first, first thing I'll say is that we have come a long way from King Farouk. Uh, <laughs> King Farouk uh, was overthrown in 1952, and there was a day when heads of state left office or were overthrown and were permitted to ride into the sunset and enjoy their riches and retire uh, in great comfort, and King Farouk went off to Italy where he lived the rest of his life. Uh, what is now called kleptocracy uh, used to be called the divine right of kings. Um, in fact, uh, while I would never accuse the Windsors of being uh, kleptocrats, uh, frankly, the crown estates go back to uh, the Norman conquests uh, when the, uh, the monarchy effectively owned the country. This concept of the monarchy owning the country uh, just devolved over centuries to the equivalent of the head of state uh, having the right to the riches and assets of the country. Uh, the big change came 30 years ago, uh, almost at about this time. 
in uh, 1986, uh, when there was a there was a confluence of events in the Philippines and in Haiti, which really changed the course of history and brought kleptocracy to the attention of the world. Uh, in 1985, uh, there were articles published in the San Jose Mercury News, which alleged that uh, Ferdinand Marcos, the president of the Philippines, had amassed vast wealth outside of the Philippines through a combination of converting state assets and, um, and uh, getting kickbacks on contracts awarded by the state to foreign countries. Then in 1986, uh, Ferdinand Marcos was, uh, was running for re-election and he was opposed by a popular politician in exile known, uh, named Benino Aquino. No sooner had Mr. Aquino landed in Manila, got out of the air, his airplane, he was shot dead on the tarmac mm -hmm. by Philippine security forces. Uh, there was an international outrage. The election went forward. Uh, Ferdinand Marcos won. And at that point, there assembled in front of McCulligan Palace in Manila, thousands and thousands of people protested in the election. Now, in the old days, the police would have cleared the streets and shot any number of demonstrators. But what had changed remarkably and what impacts our life today is the advent of technology. Because now, these demonstrations were being broadcast live around the world. And there was no way that the military could f or the security forces could fire on demonstrators. Uh, we switch gears to Haiti, uh, a deeply impoverished country and tragically still a deeply impoverished country, which had been ruled for decades by the Duvalier family, first by Papa Doc Duvalier and then his son who was known as Baby Doc, uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier. And there too, demonstrations began, there was privation, there was starvation, there was uh, horrible economic conditions in the country. And so now, you have, interestingly, the administration of Ronald Reagan, a traditionally conservative, very conservative president, uh, who had been uh, advised by uh, his uh, foreign policy advisors and by the State Department that it was time to change U.S. foreign policy. And remarkably, this is now the sea change in kleptocracy because the United States told Marcos he had to go. Uh, at about the same time, uh, President Mitterrand of France and again President Reagan uh, arranged for Duvalier to be spirited out of, du out of uh, Haiti and he goes to the south of France and now there are new governments in place. The United States House of Representatives convened hearings on the conversion of wealth in the Philippines, particularly because the Philippines were, was getting an enormous amount of foreign aid from the United States and was the situs for a tremendous amount of American business. Uh, there were hearings as on the concealed wealth of the of Marcoses, and uh, these hearings were chaired by Stephen Solars, uh, a subcommittee of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, right down the street here at the U.S. Capitol. And my firm was retained by the U.S. Foreign Affairs Committee to investigate uh, the Marcoses' wealth. Uh, to compress uh, a very long uh, and complicated investigation, we were able to link the Marcoses initially to four office buildings in Manhattan uh, with a total worth at that time 
1985-1986 of about a billion dollars, which even then was real money. Um, the, uh, the same time, uh, we found and was widely reported that there were accounts for both the Duvaliers and for the Marcoses in uh, Swiss banks. By the way, our fee uh, in that case for which we worked for the House of Representatives was, uh, was one dollar, um, which we haven't collected yet. Um, <laughs> uh, we also, we did work for fee for the Republic of Haiti at a, a greatly reduced fee. We, we felt we were, we were really doing what turned out to be a public service. In those days, a head of state could safely conceal money in Swiss bank accounts, or typically the, the most popular, we call them flight capital capitals, uh, the most popular were the, was Switzerland, and secondly was uh, the Channel Islands. The Swiss fought ferociously to prevent access to the beneficial owners of those accounts even conceding that the accounts belonged to the Marcoses and the Duvaliers, they fought back hard because they did not want their clients, both public and private, to have any concern or fear that the Swiss would lie down and, uh, and, and cough up assets that had been concealed by heads of state or by others in, in private enterprise. So. A long battle ensued. Eventually, the Republic of the Philippines mostly won. Uh, there were still assets that were retained by Amelda Marcos, who is alive today, living. Uh, and they fought for a very long time on Duvalier as well, who settled in the south of France. Um, then, over a period of years, come other changes in government. Saddam Hussein. Charles Taylor, the president of Liberia, uh, the Suharthos of Indonesia, Sani Abacha of Nigeria, Zini El Abedin Ben Ali of Tunisia, and finally Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. We, my firm, had the, the privilege of working on most of those cases and in, in investigating the conversion of assets. And then an interesting change evolves in Switzerland, beginning with Ben Ali of Tunisia. This time, the Swiss don't wait. In fact, they don't even wait for an application. As soon as Ben Ali is overthrown, they say, here's the money, take it. Uh, and they tell Tunisia, here are the accounts, here's the money, it's yours, please don't bother us. And the reason they do this is, is they've gotten a tremendous black eye over the decades for concealing ill-gotten gains of heads of state and others. And secondly, there is a very aggressive effort on the part of the United States to penalize banks who are aiding in the conversion or, the, or in, in tax evasion for Americans keeping assets outside the United States. The United States is fining banks enormous sums of money. There are efforts by the government to try to get the United States to stand down, but at this point, the Swiss give it up. And it is about this time, too, that the Swiss are cooperating also in identifying uh, accounts that were created from the conversion of assets of, um, of, of, of Jews in, uh, in Germany and in the, in the conquered nations whose assets were seized by the, by the SS and the Nazis. So the Swiss no longer want to be associated with that. The Channel Islands also begins to open up as well, uh, and they begin to very freely, either as a result of legal, legal assistance treaties or through subpoenas, 
disclose information in accounts. So the world has changed dramatically because you do not have major banking centers seeking to actively conceal the assets that are in their institutions. That's not to say that they are preventing limited partnerships and corporations from being established and bank accounts being opened, but they are no longer at least on the, the other end seeking to conceal it. So where, where now does a, a hardworking kleptocrat hide his assets today? Um, it's nowadays much too hard to steal directly from the state treasury. And it's harder to take the kind of massive kickbacks on state contracts that used to be freely available because of the, there must be 80 countries who have Foreign Corrupt Practice Act uh, laws on their books and they are vigorously enforced by the United Kingdom, which probably has the toughest law vigorously enforced by the United States. So how do you now steal money? Uh, after, um, during one of our recent investigations in, in Central Europe, someone on Reddit uh, posted a line, uh, very clever, it said, give a man a gun and he can rob a bank, give a man a bank and he can rob a country. Um, what the, the, the way it is done today is, and, and let me s say at the outset that it, to track assets, to find a kleptocrat's assets, it is not that hard. Um, it's not that easy either. What makes it not that hard these days is technology. There is an enormous amount of information, more and more, that is stored electronically in information databases, in public records. And sometimes all you need is a number. Uh, it could be someone who says, here's a bank account number, find out who owns that. Or you find the name of a company, or you find the name of a partnership. And then you can build a data trail and create uh, programs that start to get you to, to tighten the noose and find you the beneficial owners. When we were investigating the Marcos assets, what led us to the Marcos assets was the fact that the office buildings in New York were owned by an entity called the New York Land Company. The New York Land Company was registered in, uh, the, in, in the Dutch Antilles, and the registered owners were the Bernstein brothers, uh, a lawyer and a businessman in New York. Uh, and to make a long story short, we informed the House Foreign Affairs Committee of that. They were compelled to, they were held in contempt for refusing to testify. They then disgorged their uh, contempt and disclosed that they were in fact the, uh, the beneficial, that they were holding this for the benefit of the Marcoses. And the, re the, the connection was there because the Bernsteins had long been the spokespersons and representatives of the Marcoses. In the case of Saddam Hussein, we found those assets and those were a series of companies in the United States and the United Kingdom under various names. But the officers and directors of those companies were all former, mostly former government officials in Iraq. Once we tied those names to the government of Iraq, it was very easy to connect that to Saddam Hussein. Uh, in the case of uh, Charles Taylor, the president of Liberia, uh, they owned a series of, of they, they owned real estate in Florida in their own names. They didn't get work too hard. In the case, the best was Duvalier, and I have some of those souvenirs in my office in New York. Um, 
they were writing checks right off the government of Haiti Treasury. <laughs> so if, if, if in the days when you got a tax refund check, um, you got an actual check, say, from the U.S. Treasury, it was one of those green checks, well, picture having that check stock in your office and just writing out an amount and signing it, and now it's yours. That's what the Duvaliers did um, on the, uh, the Treasury of Haiti. And in, in Kate, and Michelle Bennett Duvalier had a, a children's charity called the Bon Repos. She was writing checks off that too. Uh, so my point is that there no, you can't do it by yourself. You have to have help managing this kind of money. So there are people who work in the treasury. There are people who are personal assistants. There are people who uh, work in government who must m work these gears for you. And these tend to be the beneficial owners, the officers, the directors, the shareholders of these enterprises, be they uh, limited partnerships or corporations set up in other countries. So the tools are there. Um, the other is when there is a departure of a head of state, they, they tend to leave, not, ev not everybody goes into exile. There are people who are left behind and often they are the apparatchiks, the people who have set up these companies or who have in some way facilitated this loss. Now, some may be in prison, and they want to get out. So if they want to get out, they're holding the keys to their freedom. Some of them are out and don't want to go to prison. So particularly in the case of, of Gaddafi, uh, there were any number of people who were left behind in Tripoli who were very eager to talk about where that money was. And that money... Um, some of it was in Italy historically, as we know, there's a, a very long association between Libya and Italy. Some of it was in Italy, some of it was in, uh, in Brazil. Um, but you are using a combination of what we call human intelligence, live witnesses, people who were actually part of the scheme, but more so actual records. Now, we worked on a recent case where uh, there was a, um, uh, uh, there was a fire. Tragic accident, um, uh, but the, the some of the records went up in flame. It did not deter us from pursuing uh, the investigation. Um, I was being facetious when I said it was a tragic fire. Um, it was an intentional fire. Uh, so, but as as Marius and, and Karen have have well pointed out, the facts are there. What is lacking is a will to compel transparency. You can still open, you can still establish businesses in the British Virgin Islands through local nominees. Uh, you can still establish corporations in Delaware uh, with no disclosure of, of, um, of beneficial owners. Uh, the, the difference in the United States is that you have subpoenas in the United States and ultimately that information can be disclosed. If you went online to determine the directors and officers of a business in Florida, it's all there. Tap a key, and you can get into the Department of Corporations. If you do so in New York and Delaware, that will not happen uh, because that information is not disclosed. So we have 51 jurisdictions in the continental United States uh, or in the United States, each of them with different laws. Uh, what we need is a the equivalent of some kind of ICSID, the the treaty that requires uh, the enforcement or the settlement of international disputes 
something that prohibits knowingly establishing a bank account or financial account for a head of state and for government officials without establishing clear title. If there is a will to do that, then kleptocracy can be restrained. It's also a matter of KYC, know your customer and due diligence. And we routinely find in our investigations a tremendous disparity in the enforcement of know your customer rules in the United States is the USA Patriot Act because bankers are incentivized for opening up accounts. And if there is someone who's holding millions of dollars, they're n in many countries they will not look very hard, look too hard as to who this person is. And the amount of due diligence that's conducted on a prospective depositor varies tremendously from country to country, which is why you continuously find that there are beneficial owners holding assets for government officials and heads of state. So there, there must be a, some kind of elevated, more strenuous enforcement of, of know your customer and due diligence requirements. Even in the United States, you could not, due diligence is, does not have a legal definition. It's, it's the government saying, uh, I, I know it when I see it. If you've done enough, I'll know it. If you haven't done enough, I'll know that too and, and we'll fine you. So we have um, uh, a long ways to go, but in the, the path of least resistance uh, are countries with weak banking regimens where the central bank is under political influence, where there are weak due diligence and know your customer regulations. And in those situations, you can take control of a bank, deplete the capital and assets of the bank by loans to entities that move the money out, um, arrange for the deposit in those countries of funds um, to create an illusion of liquidity. And then those deposits are themselves used, channeled out and used to repay loans. So you, what you have is an ongoing and elaborate Ponzi scheme and eventually the bank fails and it's, they turn to the I, they expect the IMF or other countries to bail them out. The saving grace in that is that when the money moves out, the money's not safe really unless it's in a major capital center. So their, their goal at times is to move the money to the United Kingdom or the United States or to a place where it's, it can't just be seized um, arbitrarily by the next political party in power. And that's where we come in and where everyone else comes in because once it's in the United States or the United Kingdom, if we can find it, we can seize it because then there are, uh, then we can take advantage of laws in uh, countries where the, the central bank is independent, where it's strong, and where you have the government as an ally. So uh, to sum up, we have come a long, long way uh, from the days when people were sh shot in the street for demonstrating against kleptocratic rulers and where kleptocrats could look forward to a life of leisure in another country. Um, but we sure have a, a very, very long way to go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to the panelists. I think we'll switch straight to the next uh, session.
All right, we're now going to uh, get uh, live video um, Evaris Abrumavicius. This should work. The first one worked, so no reason this one won't. And, and so we are ready to begin when you are. And uh, Mr. Abramovicius, uh, we might have you go first, and then uh, Ben Judah will go after you. Uh, can you hear us okay? Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. If, if you wouldn't mind um, just tilting your camera down a bit more, you're, you're a bit low on the screen. Low on the screen. So camera down or up? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, yes, that, that's that much better. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, and uh, ready to begin when you are. Okay, okay. Uh, good morning, I guess, everyone in Washington, and uh, good afternoon here uh, in Kiev. Uh, absolutely uh, glad uh, to share some views on uh, uh, the topic uh, in Ukraine. Uh, before I do that, let me share a uh, personal story uh, with you. Uh, this happened uh, on October 12, 1993. I was 17 years old and uh, or one um, month into my freshman year at an American uh, college uh, in Estonia. That day, the whole of my native uh, Lithuania uh, received a shocking piece of news. Uh, the most famous investigative journalist, Vitas Lingis, was brutally assassinated in the middle of the day in front of his uh, apartment building in Vilnius by three uh, hired assassins who shot uh, three bullets uh, straight into his head and into his chest. The whole country's life came to a standstill. Out of a sudden, uh, Vitas was the sort of a gongadze of uh, Lithuania. 
he was writing a series of articles and a hidden name about the most uh, uh, criminal and the most cruel and the most fearless organization at that time in, in Lithuania called the Vilnius Brigade. Um, this mafia group was involved in racketeering, um, early stage uh, privatization, car theft, drug trafficking and all the other uh, bad things. In the early 90s, this group had a huge influence on Lithuanian politics, on Lithuanian economy uh, and life in general and was feared by uh, everyone. Uh, within two months, uh, killers were found, and within one year, uh, the court sentenced a very influential mafia boss called uh, Boris Dekanidze uh, to uh, uh, to death for his role in this uh, crime. Vitas's death became a symbol of a fight against organized crime in Lithuania, and indeed laid uh, very strong foundations of the statehood sovereignty of. Uh, of the country. So this was, in my view, a very defining uh, uh, moment in the country's history, you know, when the leadership basically put the foot down on the ground and said, enough is enough. And from there on, we have a totally different development of the country from my point of view. We no longer face bold criminals, Chicago's 20 styles with a handgun demanding a cut of the business revenue. But we do have other type of serious problems, and that is obviously called corruption. Lithuania has dealt with it more successfully, but Ukraine has had a lot of, and still has a lot of homework to do. And I guess this is what we are discussing at this uh, event over here. As the Minister of Economic Development uh, and Trade uh, of Ukraine, I might as well have been the Minister of Anti-Corruption. Combating uh, corruption was the underlying theme in everything we did, from deregulation to reforming uh, state-owned enterprises uh, to public procurement and simply cutting staff. If a person has been in the ministry for 10 or 20 years uh, and has not been doing reforms, why would he do it now? Just because you have a different minister or some you know, shining outside the uh, window and you get off the right foot and, you know, one morning you say, okay, it's time to do reforms uh, finally. No, uh, miracles do happen, but they happen very rarely. So I fired 50% of my staff, which is almost 700 people, and I hired four, uh, and I hired 240 bright, young, energetic uh, people with whom I did uh, uh, the reforms. Uh, we were successful in a number of areas on deregulation, basically cutting 46%, uh, abolishing 46% of all licenses to conduct business activity, 40% of all permits, abolished 15,000 Soviet GOST uh, standards, uh, created from scratch uh, the most advanced, the most progressive public procurement system in the world uh, right now, uh, which is called uh, Prozora, uh, brought a lot of transparency uh, to state-owned enterprises, appointed CEOs, new ones, to key companies, which is Ukrainian Railways, Ukrainian Post, and Ukrainian Gas Company, basically stuffed them with people from Boston Consulting Group and, and McKinsey, and sometimes even from abroad, which immediately gave us uh, some very uh, sort of a uh, positive and uh, uh, astonishing uh, results. And uh, certainly colleagues in the government, uh, be it Natalie Yeresko, Andrei Pivovarsky, Minister of Transportation, or Andrei, uh, Alexei Pavlenko, Minister of Agriculture, the four of us on the economic front, you know, together did uh, substantially more than uh, uh, 
certainly has been done in, in a number of years in Ukraine, uh, and in particular uh, fighting, uh, among other things, uh, uh, corruption. So I saw certainly my role very much as, 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 as fighting corruption, fighting vested interests, because I thought that without it, Ukrainians' progress is going to be slow at best, uh, and there will be a lot of dissatisfaction, you know, within the general public, with the reform process as such. Uh, besides all the things, all the good things uh, that have been done in the country, certainly we are not yet at a point uh, where um, the vested interest cannot roll everything back. So uh, this is the sad part. And um, going forward, I would uh, pay uh, particular attention to, 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 to several issues. Uh, to the risks and to some of the opportunities. Uh, when it comes to risks, I see a recent uh, fight against anti-corruption uh, activists, uh, both in media and uh, through the highest echelons of uh, leadership, as very worrisome. Uh, we were in a situation where fighting corruption was becoming uh, uh, somewhat, uh, you know, popular, as Sergei Leshenko put it, uh, fashionable. Uh, in a good sense, uh, but recent events uh, show that there is a tendency and, and a wave uh, uh, of uh, attempting to discredit uh, all those uh, that uh, uh, criticize leadership, but mainly fight uh, corruption. So that is a very worrisome uh, signal to me. And uh, should uh, those voices be silenced, uh, I think uh, we will have a much uh, slower progress in, in tackling the issues that we're discussing today. Uh, looking uh, Mid-term to long-term, the biggest obstacles in fighting vested interests and in fighting corruption I see uh, as three. Uh, first of all, electoral uh, changes uh, need to be uh, passed. Uh, it was already in the first quarter last year that Ukraine promised to get rid of single-mandate districts. 50% of members of the parliament in Ukraine elected through the party lists, 50% through the single-mandate districts. Sometimes those people spend up to $5 million uh, to get elected. In Lithuania, 10 days ago, we had also elections, and we also have a similar type of electoral system, which works, in my views, in uh, countries with uh, strong institutions, uh, with, with high integrity, with uh, you know, checks and balances uh, to prevent uh, corruption and, and, and bribing attempts uh, to buy votes. So some people that actually won uh, in the first round, they spent 10,000 euros to get uh, uh, elected. So it is very important to change electoral law uh, to get rid of the single-mandate districts where majority of the people uh, buy themselves uh, immunity, get themselves elected, and certainly later want to make a return on the so-called investment. Uh, second, uh, which is related to the first, is financing of the political uh, parties. Again, going back to Lithuania, it's been a very good uh, uh, practice uh, where since several years ago, all political parties have been financed uh, from the uh, budget. Uh, and that brought uh, financing of political parties to a minimum with very strong uh, supervision of any possible you know, black accounting and uh, so on. So certainly less billboards, less commercial advertising and less necessity later to dip into state-owned enterprises or state fiscal service or other 
uh, institutions to basically squeeze uh, the cash flows out to pay your political uh, uh, sponsors. And as you know, from 2017, uh, Ukrainian political parties will also be financed from the budget. But uh, as so often is the case in Ukraine, the devil is in the detail. The, 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 the most important part will be implementation. Uh, we write good laws quite often, but uh, implementation uh, remains uh, uh, somewhat uh, questionable, so to say. So it is very important that Ukraine goes down that path uh, and uh, receives financing of political parties from the budget. And the third uh, thing, uh, what I think is very, very important, and it is crucial, is public servants' uh, uh, salaries. Uh, my salary as a minister was about $150 a month. Uh, I come from 20 years uh, of investment management background, where I built uh, a company with my Swedish colleagues uh, from scratch, built into the largest investment company in uh, uh, Western Europe, focusing on Eastern Europe, called East Capital, with about $8 billion under management uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, so there are a few people in the government that can afford to work extended period of time for nothing, but this is not a sustainable model. So where I could impact uh, this uh, situation, I did. I raised the uh, state-owned enterprise CEO salaries dramatically. The best people in the largest companies, and there is in the largest category eight companies, CEOs uh, receive now up to one and a half million dollars salaries uh, a year. 25% of that is fixed, 75% is variable. So if you do a good job based on KPIs, you may receive up to one and a half million dollars. With the help of donors, we also hired uh, uh, the best recruiting companies in the world. And uh, with a financial package and with an active search, we managed to get these people on board. If we kept salaries at the level of $1,000 a month for a railway company or a gas company where you have basically uh, an enormous depth of the problems to deal with, uh, physical security issues if you are about to fight uh, corruption, and reputational issues. Of course, no one is going to uh, go and work for this type of salary. But once you have a market salary, you know, which is compensating all the risks that I just uh, described, certainly these guys start to do their job and the savings already in the first few months that the gas uh, company CEO, a former McKinsey uh, partner, uh, Ukrainian, uh, delivered uh, was like 100 times uh, over his uh, uh, salary. So public servant uh, salaries is critical. In my ministry, when I uh, cut 50% of the staff, uh, Natalie Yersko was generous enough to keep the pool of money to, to ourselves, which meant that salaries doubled for those that stayed. So uh, people were scared, people were afraid, but when they saw the first salary slip, they came to me and said, we can cut more. So uh, it is not a problem to cut uh, public servants. Uh, society accepts higher pay in exchange for lower numbers of bureaucrats. Uh, my deep uh, belief uh, by cutting uh, numbers uh, was that uh, one job uh, uh, reduced uh, in the public uh, sector uh, creates two jobs in the private sector. 
and uh, society was really welcoming uh, uh, smaller numbers of public servants uh, going forward. Plus, we have all, all the types of technological advances that allow you to seriously uh, sort of a decrease number of bureaucrats. And uh, as Estonian President Thomas Henrik Ilves once said, you know, computers don't take bribes. So certainly when you put more technology uh, at work, you will have less theft. And uh, uh, another great uh, person uh, whom I admire a lot, Kaha Bendukidze, once uh, also said that, uh, you know, uh, corruption only arises when there is uh, a, a contact uh, between a government agency and, and a private business. It rarely exists between two private entities. So it is important to uh, decrease to a minimum uh, the, the, the points of contact where, where, where business and government uh, come uh, together. Uh, we have to have smaller state, smaller role of state in the economy. Uh, we need to continue to deregulate. We need to continue to privatize state-owned enterprises because a country in early stage of transition with weak institutions, with ever-changing ministers and prime ministers will never be able to be as efficient of an owner uh, and a regulator uh, as, as, as a private uh, uh, owner uh, may be. So, um, so these are just a few things that I would uh, like uh, uh, to focus uh, uh, Ukraine on. Uh, all the good things in Ukraine in the last years, unfortunately, happened with a bit of a push uh, from outside. So all these things that I mentioned need to continuously remain as a conditionality for additional uh, support uh, in Ukraine. From my point of view, uh, for the amount of uh, challenges that Ukraine is facing, both uh, internally with the populism, with the vested interests, uh, with the fatigue uh, uh, towards the reform process, and obviously externally, with the threat uh, from our dear neighbor. Um, I think the financial support it has received from the West has been inadequate. But in order to mobilize larger support, uh, you know, certainly a lot more conditionality uh, when it comes to transparency, when it comes to fighting uh, corruption, uh, fighting uh, vested interests needs to be put there. Because this is also a very serious instrument for those that still do reforms uh, in Ukraine, uh, because otherwise they, they face uh, uh, numerous uh, obstacles uh, on their way. And uh, what Western partners seek uh, and wish for Ukraine, this is exactly what Ukrainian people uh, want for Ukraine. So in this sense, uh, I believe that Western interests and the interests of Ukrainian uh, society are uh, completely uh, uh, aligned here. Uh, Fighting uh, corruption and preventing it and exposing is so important uh, for the successful development of, uh, of Ukraine that I certainly, again, encourage our donors to uh, spend, uh, you know, a huge amount of attention and, and, and those well wishes for Ukraine on this uh, uh, particular topic. From my point of view, uh, it is certainly the biggest obstacle for the progress uh, of the country by all types of business surveys. Russian aggression is maybe number three or number four main reason for a slow uh, investment uh, into the country for slow FDI, uh, with the main two being uh, corruption and uh, uh, lack of trust uh, in the in the court system. And by corruption, uh, you know the businessmen also mean uh, uh, the low level of protection of uh, of, of of property uh, uh, rights.
innovation, creativity, empowerment of bright people, technological advances, and good governments will be key to progress uh, in the coming uh, decade. Improve the living standards for people and unfortunately widen the gap between those that take these issues seriously and the rest. None of those, which is creativity, innovation, technological advances, are compatible with corruption. Corruption, as I said, is the single largest obstacle to success of Ukraine. And either we fight it here now or we are destined to watch others succeed while we sit on our hands. When I left the ministry, I told my colleagues that stayed there, don't steal, don't lie, work hard and stay to, true to your principles. In the end, the good guys always win. So um, I would like uh, to thank uh, all the participants of this uh, conference. God bless us all in this uneven battle uh, with, uh, uh, with, with, with the vested interests, with, with the corruption and with all the evil uh, forces that uh, uh, obstruct the progress of uh, the countries in transition. Thank you very much. and also uh, kleptocracy. We've got 15 minutes, so I thought I would respond with some very pointed uh, observations. The first observation, which I think is very is relevant to the United States, is how is corruption and kleptocracy conceptualised within US strategic thinking? And the right place to start with that is, of course, the US national security strategy. Oh, was I not loud enough? Well, would you like me to start again? Or is that no, everyone's, everyone's heard. If you look at the US national security strategy, corruption is mentioned. In fact, it's mentioned more than North Korea. It's mentioned in the context of Russia. It's mentioned in the context of China. It's mentioned in the context of the global financial system and its integrity. It's mentioned in the context of Africa. It's mentioned in the context of dealing with global challenges like AIDS or tuberculosis. There's only one context where it isn't mentioned, which is how all of this lattice work of corruption actually feeds through the Western financial system. And this is the only context where we have really huge terrain as Western policymakers to really reform and tackle this. One of the key aspects of the global economy uh, as it has developed in the last 20, 25 years is that gigantic sums, trillions, are traveling around the world incognito. They're passing through London, New York, Hong Kong, they're passing through the property market, they're passing through the bond market. And this has been allowed to develop because of the boom in one very specific tool, which is the offshore shell company. Many of my colleagues say that we shouldn't even call them offshore shell companies because these things are not really companies. They are, in fact, more like codes, that you set up what is a company 
de jure only in an offshore shell jurisdiction. It provides no goods or services. And then this entity is this entity which will exist only in electronic form, will exist only on the internet, probably won't even exist in, in paper form anymore, or maybe it will after with the dangers of hacking, it will have been constructed by computer-generated codes to provide various interlocking different levels of, uh, of anonymity for the individual that set it up. So is this a company? I don't think it's a company. What it is, is it's an anonymity device. It's a secrecy device. It's a mask. This particular entity can then very easily enter the uh, Western, sort of uh, the broader Western economic system. Ah, so uh, we, we, this, this entity can then very easily enter the broader Western economic system and then can freely sort of purchase property or engage in business and set up venture capital uh, programs and so on. So far, so far, one could come back and say, as long as there is a successful know your client procedure established in established towards the setting up of these companies, there should be no problem. Of course, there are reasons that individuals, celebrities, politicians, individuals with sort of might might want to choose to establish their their anonymity. However, what is depressingly clear is that the global KYC has broken down as far as these companies are concerned. There were two interesting studies that I'd like to raise to, to your attention. One is, one is called the Global Shell Game. So a group of academics contacted 4,000 incorporation agents worldwide, individuals that can set up uh, such uh, anonymous uh, companies, such secrecy devices. And they posed with 21 aliases. Some of these were were quite hilarious, sort of uh, terrorist uh, aliases, corrupt uh, spoof aliases of uh, Chinese or, or Russian officials. Now, out of the 4,000 uh, entities they approached, they attempted to set up companies without any documentation showing who they were, without any documentation to show where the money came from. Out of those 4,000, a quarter were ready to do so set up a company with absolutely no documentation. Another recent uh, investigation by the World Bank contacted 42, contacted 102 incorporation agents worldwide, and 42 were ready to set up companies without in any way the necessary, um, the necessary KYC to make sure this money hadn't been laundered or stolen uh, from the source. So it's very clear that we have a huge problem with global KYC and the system can, has in fact uh, broken down, I would, I would argue. Why am I talking about this in relation to Ukraine? Why are we talking about this as far as a foreign policy issue is concerned? The whole story that we heard from the front line was the story of how Ukraine has been attempting to build a society along the Western model, a society of the middle class, a society of strong property rights, a society where a democracy can take root in a society, uh, to, can take root uh, stably over the long term. This has been critically undermined by corruption, because corruption has seen gigantic capital flight out of the country, passing through such anonymous offshore, uh, offshore companies. Now, 
Global Financial Integrity estimates that between 2004 and 2013, Ukraine lost 116 billion in illicit financial flows. Just to put that figure in context, Ukraine's GDP in 2013 was little over 181 billion. So we can see how Ukraine as an economy, and a society, and as a state is being fatally undermined by, by this, uh, this process. If we talk about sort of uh, Vic, what Viktor Yanukovych, the deposed dictator, alone was capable of stealing, it is estimated by Ukraine state prosecutor at up to 100, up to 100 billion. Now, there are one, it, now there are there is one very clear policy that we could begin to push and begin to discuss and to formulate it into a pointed way, which is how do we stop the scale of corruption from Ukraine or from other sort of Eastern and Eastern European uh, states? And one proposal I'd like to begin a discussion about is closing down or preventing such anonymous. Uh, shell, anonymous shell companies being able to operate. And they, they, we need to begin to discuss how that could be kind of embedded within American foreign policy goals and how that could be seen as a strategic uh, objective for United States uh, strategy. Globally, the fact that uh, there's this lack of KYC and that these such uh, legal devices are being used to enable money laundering has led, to a, has led to a global looting machine where over a trillion, uh, a, a trillion dollars a year is leaving illicitly from poorer countries uh, to, to developed countries. That's the that, that money is cumulatively made up of many, many acts of, uh, of corruption from, poor, from desperately poor societies and very vulnerable societies and is leading and contributing to many of America's sort of uh, foreign policy challenges, for, uh, uh, you know, weak states in um, Africa, weak states in the Middle East, or collapsed states in the Middle East, or in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe. And instead of always trying to find a problem on the ground, which, uh, or a problem within international organizations, I think this is a very clear case where achievable reform of uh, the Western financial system can have a lot of extremely positive uh, knock-on effects and downriver effects in uh, Ukraine, but also uh, globally. So I'd, I'd like to be, be curious to hear a response uh, from the front line. Um, ben, uh, thank you very much uh, for the question. And uh, as a former investment manager uh, that, you know, has raised uh, billions and billions of dollars from institutional investors in Middle East and continental Europe and everywhere, I'm very familiar with uh, KYI and uh, all these uh, things. And I absolutely share your uh, view that this is where Western uh, leadership, uh, Western countries could help countries in transition, Ukraine including, because if all of this money is leaving our home country and finding its way in the Swiss uh, bank accounts and so on, and in a Western security services and, 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 and supervisory uh, bodies know about it and do nothing about it, this is certainly not the way to help uh, these countries uh, heal uh, a very, very serious uh, disease. And then we are destined really to, 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 to fail. Uh, if uh, West is not imposing its high-integrity standards upon issues like that, then uh, why would uh, 
you know, Ukrainians at home, uh, you know, do an extra step, you know, take a physical security risk, you know, try to expose those uh, uh, corruptioners and, and, and stuff like that. So I spend a lot of time with, with other people discussing, is it okay during a transition period to sort of steal less than your predecessors? Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it is just ridiculous. It is not okay. But uh, uh, you mentioned a $100 billion uh, being, you know, stolen by Yanukovych. There are numbers varying from 40 billion to 100 billion by general prosecutor, but not a, not 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 a single dime basically has been returned. And you know, if Ukrainian prosecutor's office is, is helpless or useless uh, or whatever, then still Western partners can really really be of help in returning uh, uh, that money. So uh, I think it's a two-way street where we. Uh, Countries with weak institutions like Ukraine cannot resolve this type of problem. It is certainly Western support that is needed. And perhaps we should be talking about an international, uh, some sort of a court like they did in Guatemala, uh, where they uh, basically, you know, with sort of the external management, brought a lot of uh, politicians to uh, justice. Or we can wish that we will follow the Romanian example, where they just like Ukraine, set up a national anti-corruption bureau, but it took 10 years, you know, for, for it to succeed. And we are seeing the first uh, success stories in the past two years in large amounts. Uh, and Ukraine, of course, says, okay, give us some more 10 years and we only build institutions and we'll succeed. So, uh, you know, we all hope that this uh, progress will be sooner, uh, again, with some of the external support. Just to come back to the point about anonymity and why, why we're talking about anonymous shell companies, I'd like to, we haven't got very much time left, but I'd like to leave you to think about the nature of anonymity in criminals. If you are a criminal, big or small, if you are a local drug dealer, if you're a slightly higher rent uh, drug dealer, if you're a narco lord, or if you're a sort of major sort of government kleptocrat, your problem isn't being able to commit the crime. If you're already a criminal, it means you're quite good at committing the, committing the crime. You're, able, you're already selling drugs, you already have access to sort of government funds, you're already sort of trading sort of cocaine between countries. Your problem is how do you turn the money you're making on the black market, how do you turn this dirty black cash that you're accumulating as quickly as possible and as securely as possible into nice, clean, white cash that you can then spend to, and convert into new sources of activity, that you can turn into new sources of power, that you can turn into new sources of wealth. This is why, my, this is why it's absolutely essential for any criminal, big or small, to be able to launder his money. And every criminal is looking for some sort of uh, ability to do so, uh, do so anonymously. And the easier it is to launder your money, the safer it is anonymously, the more powerful the criminal becomes, the stronger the criminal gets. And if we look at the kind of Western financial system in its sort of broader sense as we, we currently have, we have this terrible loophole of the anonymous uh, offshore shell company, which it is firmly within our power uh, to, cl uh, to close, or at the very least, to do a radical overhaul of uh, global KYC to prevent a situation where 
such in the global shell games, 25% of all incorporations uh, agents contacted were willing to set up a company with absolutely no information of who the person reliably was, and thus what the, where the money actually came from. Ben, just a short comment, if I may. Please. Yeah, I was in Stockholm yesterday and uh, met a guy that uh, built a 6,000 square meter restaurant, uh, which must be the biggest restaurant in, uh, uh, in Europe. And he says, we don't accept any cash in a restaurant. I mean, which is traditionally a cash uh, business and so on. In Sweden, 92% of all transactions is, is, is electronic without any use of cash. So it's, it's, it's the, ca the most cashless society. Obviously, in places like Ukraine, a lot of criminal activity, a lot of bribery is with cash. I mean, people exchange, you know, big bags of cash. I mean, just like we found out recently about an apartment uh, in Moscow uh, and so on. So one way to limit this type of activity is just to very quickly, you know, thanks to technological advances, limit severely use of cash in, in, in the economy. So certainly a, a, an answer, and it may happen fairly soon. Just sort of uh, one final point before we break for, for coffee and, uh, and discussion, which is for years we have been discussing the link between money laundering, Western enablers, and the terrible sucking sound of uh, money and thus wealth and the state capacity coming out of Ukraine, coming out of Egypt, coming out of Syria, coming out of Libya. These are all kleptocracies, but very little is being, being done about it in or the United Kingdom or in the United States on a level that links with uh, uh, the crime. And I believe that the problem is psychological because we know very well what's happening, but there are no bodies on the streets in London. There are no bodies on the streets uh, in New York. We have the data, we have the numbers, but just because we don't see the physical consequences of the crime happening on Wall Street or in the city of London or on the sort of beaches of the Cayman Islands doesn't mean that downriver people are not uh, dying, people are not suffering, people are not living in critically undermined states because of a system that we have created and it is in our power to uh, reform which enables anonymity, which is the criminal's uh, best friend, uh, to flourish. So uh, thank you. All right, I'll have to watch what I say now. Now we're missing a, uh, a Lithuanian. This is very rare, Jonas Grinevisius, who's going to start off for us. But I, I wanted to make um, one observation, and, and this final uh, group of speakers uh, is going to focus on pushback. How do we push back against kleptocracy and the border states, and I'm sure we'll, we'll sort of address that more broadly. Uh, but one of the things that came up in the last uh, session was this whole issue of some sort of international body to deal with kleptocracy, uh, some sort of court. And I just wanted to mention a project that's in the works, which some of you may or may not know about, but which may be of interest, which is um, headed up by the federal judge, Mark Wolf of Boston, who is famous for having um, put Whitey Bulger behind bars and dealt dealing with domestic corruption in the United States. And uh, he's spearheading a project for an international anti-corruption court. 
and this has gotten uh, quite a bit of traction here in Washington and uh, is something that's very much under discussion in uh, various circles. Uh, so without further ado then, um, and, and we're, since you have the bios in the handout, we're not going to do introductions of the panelists. Uh, we'll get right into this and, and they'll each speak for eight to 10 minutes and I make, uh, may make a few brief remarks and hopefully we'll have time for Q&A at the end. And I see that most of the speakers in the first panel are here. So if you'd like to address a question to someone who was on the first panel, um, we have a mic. They may be willing to entertain an answer. So we'll start, uh, we have to honor our Lithuanians, so we'll start with Jonas, um, and then David Kramer will speak, and then Kurt Volker will uh, conclude. And um, if we can be done by 12.15, we'll have a half an hour about for Q&A at the end of this. Jonas. Well, I have to make the disclaimer that whatever I'm say, whatever I'm saying here, it's uh, it does not necessarily. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, hello, uh, once again. Um, thank you, Charles, for arranging this. Uh, good to be here. Um, I have to make this disclaimer that uh, whatever I'm saying here today, it's done in my personal capacity and not necessarily uh, reflect the official views of Lithuanian government. Um, well, uh, I'm actually dealing with the political um, aspects back in Vilnius, uh, uh, but uh, indeed um, I, I wanted to make few few uh, few comments on on the topic. Uh, we all understand that foreign policy is is probably a continuation and uh, a function of um, our domestic policy. Um, we probably also understand that uh, if a certain regime or government denies to its people some fundamental freedoms, if the regime is uh, autocratic at home, there probably, probably is a very little chance of, of that country to pursue a uh, peaceful, uh, cooperative uh, foreign policy. Uh, we see that uh, autocratic countries mostly uh, are assertive, to say the least, uh, and pursue a very uh, adventurous foreign policy. There is this dictum uh, that uh, Kremlin and Putin's regime in Russia, they deny political uh, political rights to the Russian people, but at least what they do, they ensure the economic and financial rights, uh, uh, financial uh, uh, and social benefits for the Russian people. Uh, maybe uh, it was true for some time, but it definitely, definitely, in my view, it, it, it ended now, and uh, what we have at the moment is that actually we have to realize that uh, uh, autocratic regimes, they also are denying fundament fundamental economic rights to the people. And, uh, and this is very important to keep in mind. Uh, this leads me now to the, the biggest challenge uh, we have in Europe, uh, uh, to the European security and stability so far. It's, it's Russia's aggression in Ukraine. 
and Russia's aggression in Ukraine cannot be explained only by the so-called legitimate interests of Russia, uh, which were supposedly uh, hurt in Ukraine by its choice to uh, pursue its uh, European course. Um, my understanding is that uh, what worries Kremlin the most is the possibility of Ukraine becoming a truly European nation, a truly reformed nation, a nation which uh, is uh, corruption-free, uh, a democratic nation. If that happens in Ukraine, then definitely there is a big chance of uh, changes to be triggered in Russia too. Mm. I'm fully convinced indeed that uh, the change in Ukraine would inevitably mean change in Russia. And that's why Ukraine matters. Uh, that's why we have to support Ukraine and that's why uh, there should be no so-called Ukraine fatigue. Uh, it's a big, big task. Um, I don't really believe that we would be able to fix Ukraine, so to say, in, in, in a couple of years. It's a big job, immense job. I suppose we'll have now to, to, to be fully engaged with, with, with the question of Ukraine for at least 10 or 20 years. Um, but uh, we shouldn't give up because the change in Ukraine would mean change in Russia, at least a prospect of change in Russia. Uh, if Ukraine is part of Europe, we have European project complete and uh, then there is a uh, possibility of, of, of democratic Russia in future. If Ukraine fails, that also would be our failure, and um, that would mean Europe divided and uh, Russia becoming more and more imperial. You know, um, so it is, it is a paradox that the, the fight for the Russian soul now is, is actually going in, in Ukraine. And it is important to keep this moral dimension in, in, in mind. It's, it's, it's not only about the geopolitics, but it's also about, about uh, some bigger changes in, in, in those respective societies. Uh, I also wanted to make a couple of other comments. Um, it's really difficult now to pitch in after all those um, um, previous speakers, because indeed, mostly they covered the ground. Uh, but a couple, couple of more additional uh, remarks, um, in my view, if we want to, to really to be successful in tackling uh, kleptocracy. Um, it is, you know, useful, uh, it, it, we, we, it is the traditional view, the traditional wisdom is that the, the financial transactions are kind of morally neutral. I would challenge that. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that we have to introduce Sharia law here on, on, on all the financial transactions. But, you know, it is important really to understand that, that, I mean, at least a more robust legal framework is needed here. And uh, some speakers, previous speakers mentioned a uh, few aspects of that, so I'm, I'm not really an expert on that. I'm just, you know, pointing to the, you know, necessity of, of, of certain, you know, uh, robust legal uh, framework here. Uh, uh, you know, in the West, we like things neat and, and clearly defined. That's why, you know, historically, the, the state and the church are separate. That's why th there is a separation of powers in the West. That's why, you know, the government and the media are separate. That's why the media is called fourth estate. Uh, we have separation of, of government and business. 
not to mention that it is really frowned upon and there is a sanction if there is a connection to organized crime. But if not, if we don't have those divisions and in the east, I mean, uh, to the east of European Union, in Russia and in some other countries, but mostly in Russia, because what matters here is, is Russia and Ukraine, indeed. Uh, you know, th there are no divisions. There is a, indeed a toxic mix of government, business, media, organized crime, what have you. Um, and this is a, a real challenge to deal with. Now, <clears throat> what is our response? I don't believe in, in, in regime change. I'm not here to foment revolution in Russia. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing to approach the, the Russian problem is, is to indeed to increase our resilience. Because, because what Kremlin, Kremlin is doing, they attack our structural weaknesses. Uh, what I mean by that? I mean, if we want to really be successful in, in, in tackling kleptocracy, we, we have to really look into the mirror. We have to see and realize how the Western financial system is working. This is the where, where we have to really to begin with. Uh, also, in my view, if we really want to be successful in dealing with kleptocracy, we have to learn all the lessons of the financial and economic crisis of 2007, 2009. To be very, very honest, Without that, there is no chance of us succeeding. Because indeed, the Russian assertiveness and their, their you know, foreign policy, in my view, it was a watershed. They, they, they really made certain conclusions out of this crisis. And that's why we are here today talking about it. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the world today is, in my view, in much better place than it used to be, say, I don't know, 30 or 20 years ago. Um, the fact that we are talking about it today it means that we are on the right path and I would really uh, wish uh, Charles and, and his endeavor uh, all the best. Um, what is needed though is, is the change of culture indeed. I mean, uh, there are things written, there are written rules we, we, we have to obey. There are also things unwritten. And, and, and indeed, Russians are very good in rewriting unwritten rules. They also are challenging written rules. And the thing to, I mean, how do we, how do we address that? We, I mean, we definitely have to be serious about changing culture here in the West. That's the only way to, to really to be able to, to be successful in, in tackling the kleptocracy in the East. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Jonas. I didn't know that Jonas was gonna talk about morality and change of culture, and I think I'm very happy he did that. I think it's an absolutely key and fundamental point. Um, and actually last January, and I was in London for kleptocracy bus tour that we put together along with Ben Judah and um, Oliver Below and Peter Pomerantsev. And Peter Pomerantsev mentioned to me, well, why aren't we talking about morality anymore in politics? And uh, I, thought, I thought it was an interesting Thing and I, th I was surprised at that coming from Peter Pomerantsev. So I mean I think those are those are, are key things and uh, and for us to shy away from talking about culture 
is uh, is a uh, weakness really we need to confront that we have a problem in that regard and indeed looking in the mirror is the place to start um, so thank you Jonas mr. Kramer Charles thanks very much um, it's uh, great to be here thanks for putting this together um, I'm gonna start with some terrific news which is in the Moscow Times this morning, I read that the communist rally in Russian State Duma to push anti-corruption law. Um, <laughs> the Russian Communist Party has urged the country's State Duma to ratify the UN's Convention Against Corruption. So I think we can end today's event and you can close down your project. I've never felt better about things. Um, all joking aside, um, I don't think that's going to mean very much um, since uh, kleptocracy is fundamental and essential to the Putin regime. And I know we're focusing on states bordering the Russian Federation, not so much on Russia itself, but you can't talk about the impact of kleptocracy on the neighboring states without talking about uh, the kleptocratic nature of the Putin regime itself. And the, 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 uh, other issue that I think is critical to our discussion is that kleptocracy and authoritarianism go together. Um, the more stealing that goes on, the more thievery, the more uh, asset stripping and rent seeking, all of these uh, activities and illegal behaviors reinforce the need for authoritarian regimes to entrench and deepen their authoritarian methods because they become uh, more nervous, more paranoid, that they possibly could be on the other side of the fence rather than on the side where they're stealing from. And the more corrupt they become, the more they crack down, and the more desperate they might become and resort to desperate measures that include killing people who uh, investigate certain issues, whether it is the 1999 bombings of four apartment buildings in Russia that killed nearly 300 people, or others who expose the illegal activity of, of the Putin regime. And so uh, this becomes a, a huge problem um, because it means that we need to do a better job on both issues, on both going after the sources of kleptocracy and also the sources of human rights abuses because actually we will find out they are coming from the same place. Um, and if we deal with one, we will help ourselves in dealing with the other. Russia's greatest export, Putin's greatest export, is corruption, kleptocracy. But in order to export it, we have to import it. A and this gets at Jonas's point about looking at ourselves and seeing how we become facilitators and enablers of this kind of activity and doing a much better job of cleaning up uh, our, our own ways of doing business. There's been discussion already, uh, I, I missed the first panel, but I heard the, some of the discussion about Ukraine, um, which is a huge challenge when it comes to issues of, of corruption, kleptocracy. Um, Azerbaijan, another country in the region, is uh, another place where kleptocracy is the way of running that country with the Aliyev regime. Um, and this is another perfect example of a kleptocratic regime engaging in gross human rights abuses, where we see one of the worst crackdowns in Azerbaijan um, in, in since its independence. Um, and the regime in Baku is deepening its efforts, including with a phony referendum that took place last month, 
that will entrench even more uh, President Aliyev's grip on power and give him the opportunity to ensure that his family will also stay in control and be protected. Moldova, of course, had a huge scandal with a billion dollars that disappeared. Um, Moldova is in need of massive assistance from the outside to address its corruption problems. And, and these problems in Ukraine, and in Azerbaijan, and in Moldova, and other countries, leave these countries vulnerable to increasing Russian influence and leave them exposed to Russian efforts to exploit their weaknesses and, and their uh, illegal activity. So it is in these countries' interest, first of all, to deal with corruption and kleptocracy because it's not the way to do business, it shouldn't be, uh, but moreover, it leaves them vulnerable to Russian <coughs> influence and, and uh, uh, undermining their sovereignty and territorial integrity. So what do we do about this? And I'll do this very quickly. Um, I think there are several things. One is we need to be more aggressive in offering our assistance. To borrow one of my favorite phrases from The Godfather, we need to make offers that these countries can't refuse with FBI, Department of Justice assistance, um, and recognizing that helping these countries fight corruption and kleptocracy <coughs> serves U.S. interests. We're not doing these countries a favor. We're actually helping our own interests in offering these countries such assistance. Second, we need to step up investigations. I applaud the Department of Justice's investigation into FIFA, uh, which has made folks in Moscow quite nervous, uh, given how Russia will be hosting the uh, soccer, what is it called, World Cup in 2018. I imagine a little money traded hands. I doubt there were many credit card transactions uh, <laughs> that were conducted. <coughs> Um, but you could look at the International Olympic Committee um, and other big sporting events. Sport, these massive sporting events have become huge sources of corruption, uh, including in Azerbaijan, which has hosted the Grand Prix, uh, the Euro Olympics, which no one had ever heard of because they hadn't existed before, but they become huge cash cows for these regimes, and we need to do a better job of exposing all of their problems. Lastly, um, sanctions. Uh, this is about Magnitsky that was passed in 2012, which gets at human rights, gross human rights abuses in Russia, which will in turn, if implemented aggressively, help in the fight against kleptocracy and corruption. Um, it also involves global Magnitsky, which is still being debated in the Congress. It has suffered a bit of a setback in the past few months. Hopefully it will get back on the agenda, maybe not passed in the lame duck, although possibly attached to some legislation but hopefully we'll get passed uh, early in the new Congress next year. This will include not just sanctions on uh, officials involved in gross human rights abuses, but officials involved in serious corruption. Uh, and yet, the uh, US government, the administration, does not need legislation. There is existing authority to impose sanctions against officials involved in corruption, denying them uh, visas in particular, but even looking into seizing assets. The seizing assets part is the most complicated and most difficult because it has to go through the criteria that the Department of Treasury has in its OFAC office, Office of Finance, Financial Asset and Control, um, which is one of the most stringent uh, offices that I dealt with when I was in the government at the State Department. Um, and 
when they put someone on their sanctions list, it has to stand up in a court of law because an individual can challenge having his or her assets uh, frozen. You can't challenge denial of the visa. That's a discretionary matter. Kurt knows this much better than I uh, from his years at state. Um, but denying not just the individuals who are involved, but their husbands or wives or sons or daughters or mistresses, you name it, um, they like to send their families to the West. They like to send their money to the West because they have more confidence in our ability to ensure the safety and security of their ill-gotten gains. So if we start cutting off their avenues, both physically that they can't come here, but then financially that their money can't come here, and if it does, it will get frozen, then I think we can make some serious inroads in the fight against kleptocracy and corruption. Thank you, David. Kurt? Just like that? Well, sure, do you want me? <laughs> okay, all right, green is on, great. Um, thanks very much. And I wanna congratulate uh, Charles and Hudson and uh, Marius for putting this together because this is a topic that no one pays enough attention to, and so I'm glad to see it get the kind of focus that it's getting here. This is really important. Um, and in that respect, too, I do want to pay credit, since I see a, um, Athena out here in the audience, that Toria Newland and Dan Freed in the State Department have focused on this. Uh, this is actually really good. Uh, it, it is not common, and it may have to do with the fact that it's one of the few things that we can do something in a world where it seems like we're always told we can't do things. Uh, so it's good that they're doing that. Then in terms of the commenting on the subject matter itself, though, I thought I would divide up my comments into what's new and what's not new. Uh, the first thing is kleptocracy is not new. Uh, the idea that elites and, and regimes feather their own nest, steal from the people, abuse them if they want to do anything about it, take their money out, go and play, whether it's in their own country or somebody else's country, this is not new. This has been going on for as long as history uh, can be imagined, that, that, pe that the purpose of power has been to be in power and to have wealth and to enjoy it, and people have always done that. So that's not new. Um, something that is new, and there's two aspects to this, in the long-term trend of things, the number of democracies and free societies in the world has gone up dramatically. And so people have more of a say in complaining about what those elites are doing. So that's a good thing. The recent trend that's new, however, is it's slipping back. Uh, so the long-term trend is great, the, the short-term trend of the last 10 years is bad. And so we're, we're seeing that. Um, something else that's new is the potential for it to impact our own societies. Uh, in the past, people would tend to look at these things, well, they're stealing money from their own people and in their own country, and then they bring it over here and they play, and I'm happy to take their money. And they can buy, they can buy this house or they can, um, they can you know, buy our, our products and things, and, and we, don't, we never really worried about it as impacting us, affecting our own societies. I think now um, we have to actually raise a flag, as Eunice has done and others have done, saying, you know, it does have a potential to impact. Um, in various ways, there's just the raw economic impact of inflated property values in London that Charles was talking about, uh, so that normal people in London can't afford to be in downtown London anymore. 
but I'm not sure it's affected British politics all that much. It may affect British foreign policy a little bit, how you calibrate what you talk about in dealing with Russia. Uh, so there may be a foreign policy impact there. But then you get to uh, small countries where this amount of wealth and this amount of organized crime, um, which, uh, in which I include the Kremlin, um, it has such an overwhelming impact, it can affect you know, the financing of political parties, it can affect election outcomes, it can affect the um, corruption of officials, which then in turn deals with the transparency and, and fairness of those own systems. So it's, it can have a much bigger corrosive effect. And that's not true only for small countries. You can see it in some big countries that seemingly willingly say, well, it's not such a bad thing. Uh, and you see uh, even people at the level of a chancellor of a country tempted by the money that can, can come with this. So um, that is something that I think is new. Uh, another thing that's new is our desire as a part of the West, the United States, and, and Europe to try to do something about it. I don't think that this has been on the radar uh, even 10 years ago as a priority to say we, we ought to do something about kleptocracy and the impact of that. Uh, partly because uh, it affects people in countries like Russia or Ukraine. We want to help those people. Partly because uh, we find the tools in this area, financial sanctions and investigations and FBI things, much more palatable than other sorts of tools, uh, partly because of the impact on our own societies. So there is a greater willingness to do it. But then on the side of something else that's also new, our broader perspective of what it is we're trying to do in the world as developed democracies has kind of fallen off fallen off the, the roadside here. We, we had some time ago a pretty clear vision of the fact that we as a free society, a democracy, a market economy, a law-abiding country, or a human rights-respecting country, we need to be in a global environment where those values are increasingly respected and shared and building a great global community of which we are a part and which benefits our country. And that would be true of any democratic country. Uh, that is no longer such a clear goal. You don't hear people articulating that as an objective of the United States or an objective of Europe to build that kind of global community. It's much more reactive. It's much more uh, live and let live. It's much more passive. And that, in fact, has given the ground for some of this rollback of democracy that we've seen over a period of time. So while we may have a greater willingness to tackle the specific issue of corruption, the, and kleptocracy, the context in which we're doing it, our broader goals and strategies, has kind of evaporated. And I think we need, if I were to make one recommendation at the end of this panel, it's to get back on focus as to what it is we need as a country and what we need to be trying to do in the world, and give, the, and in doing so, give efforts to focus on kleptocracy and corruption as, as uh, you all are doing. A, a reason, <laughs> a place, a way in which it makes sense so we know what it is we're trying to get out of it. Otherwise, it can just be kind of a whack-a-mole going after you know, various sorts of ways that various sorts of corrupt officials manage to steal money and, and hide it. Right, well, <clears throat> thank you, Kurt. Well, Kurt really ended with a point about culture without mentioning the word, which uh, ties in with uh, Jonas. 
Now, we have time, finally, for um, some Q&A. And I'd like to point out that the panelists in the, um, on the uh, first segment <coughs> are here. So if they're willing to take a question, uh, they're fair game, too. So Marius Lorinavicius. Lorinavicius. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Marius Lorinavicius. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. Uh, Karen Duisha and Dan Carson are all here, and we have mics that are going to circulate. And while I'd, I'd personally like us to focus on the whole issue of pushing back against kleptocracy, we certainly will entertain other questions. In the, uh, the gentleman in the back. Thank you, uh, John Constato Radzima Photo. Um, if you held this panel outside the Beltway, a lot of Americans would listen very carefully and then, but in the back of their minds, the words Solyndra and pay to play would uh, come up. And I think we need perhaps to, uh, if we're going to propose solutions and actions in the rest of the world, also take the beam out of our own eye. But my two questions are, one, what about cutting Russia off from the SWIFT system? And two, it would be very interesting if the three panelists could comment on the extent of Russian lobbying in not only in Washington, but in the US in general to try to fudge the very real problem that all of you touched on. Thank you. Well, that's, that's a, a good kickoff question. Um, who, want, who wants to start <laughs> with that one? Uh. No? John, on uh, actually your point about uh, ourselves here, it reminds me of a line of, I won't say who it was, told me about tainted money. He said, taint enough. Uh, <laughs> and so we actually do need to out those who are taking money that they shouldn't, dirty money. Um, and, and we need to do a much better job of that. On, on SWIFT, uh, my understanding, I'm not an expert on SWIFT, but SWIFT can't be done without the Europeans. And uh, the Europeans are not on board with this, um, in part because the Russians have described it as a nuclear option, which has gotten the Europeans all nervous. Um, but frankly, the Obama administration isn't prepared to take the step on SWIFT either, so we shouldn't pin the blame on, on Europe for this. Yeah, it is a big step. Some are worried that if we took it, the Russians would join with the Chinese in setting up an alternative uh, banking system. My view is good luck to them, because uh, the Chinese, uh, I, I think, still value their economic financial relationship with the United States more than they do thinking that a relationship with Russia will pay off. On uh, Russian lobbying, um, it's a problem. Um, there are former members of Congress uh, who are engaged in lobbying for Russia. Uh, there are former diplomats. Um, th it's a pretty big industry here. Um, and there's nothing illegal about it, um, but I think just disclosure about it is important. Um, and, uh, you know, there are certain projects that are being lobbied as well. Um, and I think to make sure that everything is being disclosed on that is, is very important. Uh, I'll say a couple things. Uh, one, I, th I think the Russians have a point that knocking them out of SWIFT is a nuclear option. <laughs> um, now, not to say it isn't worth holding out there and being willing to do it at the right time. 
but it would really impact the ability of all Western businesses, U.S. and European, to do any business with Russia. And so there's a, there's a huge impact on us uh, from doing so. So it is a nuclear option in that sense. It, it, um, it's something that we'd have to really weigh carefully and decide to do only when we're really ready to take the hit ourselves too. On the um, lobbying question, that's interesting. I don't believe or I don't see a lot of direct Russian lobbying. I think that the idea of people um, in the U.S. of taking money directly from Russia in order to influence legislation or policy and then report that and their disclosures and all, there's not a lot of appetite for that. So I don't see a whole lot of direct Russian, Russian lobbying. What you see, however, is a lot of indirect. And with indirect, I think you see um, ways, of, ways of providing funding in, in the academic and intellectual space, uh, think tank debates, uh, scholars, travel tours, um, and particularly the influence of propaganda where Russia deliberately through things like RT and Sputnik and th through other ways of getting stories in tries to create confusion about what's really going on and causes people to doubt uh, what Russia or its, its, its arms are doing and uh, allows for a debate internally in our country and, and in our societies uh, that really shouldn't even be a debate. It, it should be just clear what's happening, but they're very good at using these indirect means to influence thinking. I wouldn't uh, want to comment on the uh, Russian lobbying in the U.S., uh, but I can assure you that the concept of Russian uh, lobby in Lithuania is familiar to us. Uh, recently, we are, we are making quite a good uh, progress, I think, fighting back. Still lots of uh, things to be done in that respect. On SWIFT, I absolutely agree that it is understood that it's kind of a nuclear option in the financial world, and this financial holocaust might, you know, trigger a, um, a reaction from the Russian side, which we don't really want at the moment. So. It has to be. It has to be kind of proportionate. The the feeling, uh, the understanding on both sides of the Atlantic, I, I, I understand, is that uh, it would indeed be uh, too big a step to take at the moment. And you have to skillfully use it as a as a leverage in in our dealings with Russia. Okay. Uh, just very quickly on, on Swift. Um, Sorry, I'm a little colorblind, so I can't tell which color is which. Um, uh, but one thing I would say is we should not take SWIFT off the table. Um, there is a, an all too unfortunate tendency to telegraph to the Russians what we won't do. We, we should leave them guessing. Why, why let them know that we're not going to do SWIFT? Um, so I, I would want to keep every option on the table, including SWIFT. I know Karen is looking into this whole issue of lobbying. So, oh, there we go. Quite interested in SWIFT, and by the way, I'm glad to see that Yudis Yorkonis is back with us remotely. Um, in our policy making, we have all too common a feature to, to regard things as a white hat, black hat, cowboy world, 
with only one move and one person dies, the Russians never look at politics that way. So you have to think about the pro biggest problem with Russia is Russia's access to and promotion of the black economy. We don't, if, we, if you get rid of SWIFT, you will have a tsunami of money going into the black economy because all of Russia's money will go there. So and SWIFT is useful because we can watch SWIFT. We can't watch a lot of other stuff. You know, when you have a situation where uh, videos are revealed where people are, you know, one oligarch is asking another oligarch how many pallets of cash they want. Well, we, <laughs> we don't want to have more pallets. <laughs> we want to we be able to see what's going on. Um, I would like to ask um, the panel one question, because I'm sure that they are thinking about this to a certain extent. What would be your estimate? Of how, of the extent of asset seizures, that has occurred already under Russian sanctions. Uh, I mean, <laughs> but but by by way of saying that, when Putin says that we need to pay Russia back for all the money that's been taken, not just lift sanctions, what is that number? How big is it? How big is the effect? Any any well, thoughts? We thought you were the expert on this, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't say. Is this on? Yeah. Um, my bet, Karen, is actually it's zero. Um, you know, you have the what's they call the Prevazon case in New York, and and I honestly don't know whether the money because it's being appealed and their lawyers had just been kicked off that case um, by the U.S. Court of Appeals. Um, but I'm not aware that their assets have been frozen. And if they have, that I think is the only case where there have been assets frozen so far. I am not aware, at least under Magnitsky, that anyone else's assets have been frozen. But if you or others have different information, I really would welcome it. All right, uh, Ryan, can you pass the mic to the young lady in the front row here? Testing. I'm reluctant to interrupt this wonderful financial discussion with a um, question of legal rights, but it, it's uh, really moved me to know that a very brilliant American scholar has not been able to get her book uh, published by, uh, in foreign languages by um, a major American publishing house because they're afraid they're going to be sued uh, surreptitiously by um, a kleptocratic regime, namely Russia. And um, uh, this has been repeated in the UK. Um, where the, the, the book was refused wholesale. And this has been appeared in the American press. And if there's someone here that would like to elaborate on this, it would be wonderful. But um, um, this is very serious. I know the ambassador has said that we're not so um, influenced by some of the vicissitudes of this terrible situation we're in with Russia. But this is very serious for us as Americans that 
we were not going the, this, the act of, the, of this book being refused in the UK was going to prevent us from learning about this. And now the world, the rest of the world is being prevented from knowing about what's truly going on in Russia. And so this is, this is um, in our way of thinking, a very big moment in this debate. Thank you. Um, this sort of, would Karen like to comment uh, very briefly on this without, without seeming to connect any dots, of course, and then we'll come to some other questions. It is true that um, my book is not available officially by Simon & Schuster anywhere in the world except in the United States where it's protected by the First Amendment. Jeff Bezos did take the unilateral decision to sell it wherever Amazon operates in English. So that has done a lot to break the ice, uh, ice jam. Uh, but I, I think that there is a big problem, and it, it's, a, it's a problem not just of academics being fearful that they won't get visas or won't be able to advance their careers or whatever if they don't continue to get visas to go to Russia. It is a problem that people aren't willing to break. Um, or because they think, I mean, they look at a case like my book and say it won't get published. And even since the book was published, and that's the last point I'll make, you know, I was asked by the Times of London to write an op-ed, and then they wouldn't proceed with the text. So uh, somebody like Nick Cohen, who writes on this issue uh, for The Observer in, in the UK, um, writes about how you can't write clearly about kleptocracy in the UK for fear of being sued. So that people read these gobbledygook articles on the, on the subject, and only the insiders uh, understand what's really going on. It's, it's really a huge problem. Just a quick comment. It, it underscores how um, regimes and individuals who engage in this kind of kleptocratic and corrupt activity exploit our rule of law-based legal system. I don't know what we do about that because closing the door on them is problematic. Um, and it's not just Russia. I, I can think of some Ukrainian oligarchs who have gone to court more in the UK than here. Um, and uh, I think, in fact, a Hudson, uh, rather a, a colleague in the think tank world here who's had been affected by these legal cases. Um, but they are very skillful at exploiting our system. We need to be smarter about how we undermine their system so that they can't do this. I know that some Washington law firms, and one in particular I'm thinking of, have, made, have large kleptocratic practices where they cater to these people and they're enabling them. And nobody's talking about this. Yeah, well, it's uh, difficult to talk about it, which is a, a real problem. Yeah. We're going to, Ryan, right behind you. There's a while, we're, while we're getting Deborah the mic, I just wanted to be clear that what I said is that it's one of the things that is new, is that this is beginning to affect our societies. Not that it's not, but that this is now a phenomenon that we have to make it, take it more seriously as a result. Yeah. Also, I should have said, can you please introduce yourselves before uh, asking your question? Thank you. 
Hi, Deborah Kagan from Johns Hopkins Science. Um, whatever happened to reciprocity? So um, why are Russian oligarchs able to buy, it's not just London, huge amounts of real estate, sports teams, the Brooklyn Nets, sports stadiums in the United States with no repercussion, and US people cannot invest similarly in Russia. Whatever happened to reciprocity? Where has this gone? Why do we not still use this in the conduct of business and diplomacy? I mean, the Commerce Department used to have very strict rules on this as well. So whatever happened to this? Why do we have oligarchs owning big chunks of Brooklyn? I'd like to address that one, because I think that that's exactly right. We have, is the mic on? Okay, sorry. We have naively uh, gone in for the belief that, well, um, everybody deals in the same marketplace. And so it's okay, uh, we maintain an open marketplace and people can buy and sell. And uh, these people who are in Moscow, they're business people as well, they're private business people. That we, we act as though it's all one playing field. And that's nonsense. And what we see is uh, whether it is in the form of kleptocracy and corrupt officials and illicit gains in places like Russia, or in the case of state support for industries, such as in China, where they're not really ind independent actors either, it's not really like-like when you're talking about who's competing and what they're able to do. So what we would need to do as a matter of policy is draw a distinction between where market rules apply, and therefore that's how we also apply them, and where market rules don't really apply for whatever reason, the ineffective uh, application of the rule of law or the corrupt application of that or the direct state control or the legislations that go in place to prevent that. And as you said, um, put restrictions on entities that come from that environment uh, because of the environment itself, not anything unique to an entity. You don't have to research the entity, you have to research the environment and say it's, a, it's a not a level playing field environment, therefore we can't offer the same thing here. That's the kind of thing that no one has been talking about or thinking about for ages. And it is relevant because it is the way that we see a lot of these players acting now. Hi, I'm Kate Bateman. I'm a visiting fellow at CNAS. And um, I'd like to ask about, well, really any panelists from the morning to comment on uh, the constraints they see for a greater U.S. Um, involvement in you know, pursuit of some of the solutions that are responses that Mr. Kramer and others mentioned, like more aggressive, you know, offering more aggressive assistance packages for anti-corruption, or, um, or I know FCPA cases are, you know, are robust, but other other tools, you know, sanction using our sanctions and those authorities that exist. And there are a couple, there are a few reasons I can think of, and I'm wondering if you can comment on them. You know, one might be just a lack of appreciation for the threat itself, for the, the ways that corruption undermines U.S. interests around the world. Um, another ex uh, possibility is an attitude that leads to complacency, this attitude that, well, it's cultural, or this is, this uh, country X has been corrupt for decades, and we're not going to change that. And then another um, possibility is uh, where we have strong security interests we perceive you know, pursuing uh, long-term 
um, governance, good governance goals and anti-corruption as, as imposing costs on maybe uh, intelligence sharing or you know, CT or um, counter-proliferation cooperation. Could you comment on those, please? Thanks. I'd love to comment on that too. Um, because I think all three of the reasons that you gave are valid, uh, underestimating it, a complacency about it. Um, the security issues, one, the way I would phrase it is a mistaken belief. We convince ourselves that we need Russia for X, that you know we have this problem, Iran or Ukraine or Georgia or whatever, and we need Russia for this. And it's a, it's a self-deception because Russia is the source of the problem. <laughs> and it's not that they're seeking to solve it and that our engaging them is going to somehow make them part of the solution. We actually have to reframe our thinking about it and say, actually, we don't need them for this. In fact, we need to put them in a box on this in order to deal with it. And that, that reframing of thinking, I think, would address um, uh, what you're saying there. market vendor who set himself on fire was protesting corrupt actions by local police authorities. That then in turn, sorry, green, well, I don't know if it's green or red, um, which means don't drive with me. Um, <laughs> green is go. Green is go, okay, all right, I gotta remember that. Um, but uh, you know, that market vendor who set himself on fire sparked revolutions throughout the Middle East that we're, st we're still dealing with the repercussions of that. That was about corruption. It started about corruption. Market vendor was tired of being shaken down on a consistent basis, having his small income stolen from him. So uh, we, we make a huge mistake in thinking that we can turn a blind eye on corrupt activities in a country while focusing on security cooperation. It is possible that these countries with whom we, we deal will blow up one day. Nobody wants that, it's not a, a good thing necessarily, but um, it's the old expression, these regimes seem stable until they're not. And we never quite know what the, literally the trigger is uh, that could ignite a revolutionary movement. So uh, we, we could wind up hurting our own interests by turning a blind eye and being viewed as enablers and facilitators of this kind of activity. Uh, one small remark, I, I wanted to thank you very much for this question. I think it's, it's, it's the key indeed. Uh, one thing which I didn't mention in my introduction, introductory remarks was, I mean, that we indeed have to rethink the concept of bastard, but our bastard. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Ted Kontek, I have a, a question. Uh, in this discussion all day uh, today, we heard the equality being made between an autocratic regime and kleptocracy. Uh, and now we're seeing the equa equation being made between kleptocracy and corruption, uh, which is somewhat different. And in talking about Ukraine, we say, well, the success of Ukraine, uh, if it's successful, it'll be a united democratic Europe. I hear no mention of another little country in between Lithuania and Ukraine, which is very autocratic, but not very corrupt. Uh, Belarus. 
it's not very corrupt by local standards, by the regional standards. It's not very corrupt at all. As a matter of fact, Lukashenko, first thing he did, he whacked the oligarchs. He didn't start killing the politicians until later. So, I mean, uh, <laughs> he bragged about it himself. So uh, is there really a, a link between kleptocracy and autocracy? Is that a necessary link? I, I think what you'd have to say is what Lukashenko was doing was creating a monopoly on corruption. Ted, just, you know, there are democratic countries that are corrupt, but they're not kleptocracies. Uh, there's corruption in the United States, obviously. We've been talking about it all day here. Um, but it, I would say that authoritarian regimes do have the problem of being kleptocratic um, because they, there's just not the freedom to allow people to engage in, in private sector activity. Um, and to, to own property or, or whatever the case may be, um, whereas there, there is that ability in, in free societies. Well, I, th I think one of the phenomena, I mean, when we started the kleptocracy initiative here two years ago, I, I always led talking about autocracy and about how what we face from a national security perspective are autocracies who are very threatening to us militarily and uh, in terms of kleptocratic export, et cetera. But these autocracies happen to be kleptocracies, and that's why we're interested in kleptocracy, not because it's kleptocracy per se. Cosman, U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Um, we've been talking about the neighbors of Russia, which I believe also includes countries like Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan, which are kleptocracies par excellence, if one can use that term in that context. Um, also, I wanted to ask, I've heard rumors that Putin is probably the richest man in the world. I'm wondering if any, any of you can comment on that. Thank you. Um, yeah, Kathy, uh, is, I mean, certainly uh, uh, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, uh, I would put in that category uh, more than, say, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan just because of energy and resources that those three countries have over the other two. Um, and the fact that until Krimov just died, Uzbekistan, along with Kazakhstan, have had the same leaders since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, we'll see what happens in Uzbekistan. I don't hold out a lot of, of hope for that. Um, I saw there was a campaign for uh, uh, Turkmen presidential election coming up. I'm sure that question, uh, the outcome of that is in real doubt. Um, but um, yeah, these are, these are perfect examples of uh, kleptocratic regimes to, to, and, and authoritarianism going together, but to varying degrees. Um, they're, they're not, um, come, they don't come from the same mold. On Putin being the richest man, um, it's a distinct possibility, I would say. Take the woman in green, then we'll, all right, that's fine. You go. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Alex. Uh, I cover Azerbaijan and surrounding countries. Uh, one thing I really appreciate that was very well rendered by the panelists was about, um, you know, it's our, it's of our, our interest as the U.S. to talk about kleptocracy because they reach out to, you know, the kleptocrats um, and challenge them. Uh, so they, they try to bounce back by saying that, hey, it's my internal affairs or it's my money. I know how to spend it. So we kind of, uh, try to 
you know, draw that line and say, hey, it's of our interest. But I think, you know, from journalism perspective, when someone tells us that, you know, a bunch of kleptocrats come to, come to the U.S. and, you know, steal our democracy and try to, you know, corrupt our, you know, financial system, that's us more than just, you know, national interest. It's like national security concern, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I just totally agree. It is national security. The, these regimes will become unstable one day. Uh, they may already be unstable. And it's why in they, they seek stability by further cracking down. And in doing so, or stealing more, uh, because they view it as their opportunity to do so. And if they don't steal now, they may not have the opportunity in the future. Um, so it, it very much becomes a, a national security issue for the countries themselves and for us. If I may, Charles, um, interrupt here. I guess I guess we have. Uh, oh, we have one more. Okay. Oh, all right. We'll we'll take Nudas's comment and then we'll come back to you. Nudas. Uh, thank you very much, Charles. I just wanted to react to the question here and to the fact that for the smaller countries like Lithuania, like Latvia, like Estonia, the question of the national security is really um, much more important. And the panelists were really talking about the mental shift, shift needed there to understand the uh, effects of the kleptocracy, but I think that um, both nations and industries and companies in the smaller uh, countries should also change to understanding that transparency initiatives, corporate governance is not a cost, it's not the administrational burden, but as was said, the, the question of the um, critical interest and the interest of the national security. And I would give you a simple, simple example. I think that Karen mentioned the Moldovian example with really, uh, you know, a big chunk of the GDP being uh, laundered uh, from the country. But if I was talking as, a, and I was thinking as a, as a kleptocrat, right, I would really focus on the smaller countries, because this is a very cheap investment, if I can paraphrase that, to buy influence on the national level, and to buy influence and especially in such countries like mentioned, like Central Eastern Europe, etc., to be really to have the gateway to European uh, Union, to have the gateway to uh, NATO alliances, etc., etc. So it's 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 really a, it would be a very profitable and very sensible investment to put whatever millions you want, because it's it's really a, a you know uh, really a cheap investment and you can gain a lot out of it. So I, I really uh, fully agree with you that this is by no means a question of the national security and national safety. Thank you, Liudas. Um, we can take one or two more questions. Do we have anything else? Oh, looks like. Well, why don't we take the gentleman in the, uh, on the, no, on the aisle here, Lona, right up here. And then we'll take a final com final comment from Karen Dewisha, and then it's lunchtime. Good. Uh, Chapman, uh, the first panel made it seem like the Russians don't have to invade the Baltics. They might just buy them. 
And uh, if you have these corrupt politicians uh, in those countries, uh, their value to Russia is that they've gained political power. So isn't there some pushback from the electorates in the countries which, in fact, do have elections? And as to Putin's wealth, and I wonder if uh, Mr. Carson could comment, there's some uh, discussion that uh, the U.S. intelligence knows uh, where Putin's money is buried and was considering whether to reveal that in retaliation for Putin's hacking. And I wonder if uh, uh, he or anybody else wants to comment on that. Well, the first question should go to our Lithuanian team. So, Jonas Marius, do you want to take comment on this first? Yeah. Well, uh, there definitely is a pushback from the society. Uh, I can give you an example of recent elections when two, uh, I mentioned two names from Lithuania uh, in my presentation. It was uh, impeached President Paxas and uh, former economy minister Uspaskich. Both uh, parties uh, which they lead uh, were almost, uh, well, gone from our political scene uh, after these elections. Um, but it doesn't matter that uh, when we solve one problem, the uh, not uh, the other uh, problem rises. Um, and that's, uh, a, a, that's a problem even in Lithuania. I, I wrote an article um, just, just today for Lithuanian press that uh, we're not taking uh, seriously the next uh, Possibly Russian project in in, in in Lithuania. So so maybe in some a year or two we will find that these two parties uh, are almost dead or or dead. But we will have some other problems in, in Lithuania. So it's a, as I said, it, it's a constant and consistent uh, attempt to take over, and we should be very serious about that. I mean, I can assure you that Lithuania is not for sale. And uh, indeed, I mean, uh, we, we uh, I, I suppose, that currently indeed, it, it, I mean, the, you, you look at our business community, which used to have a huge um, economic cooperation uh, trade uh, with, with Russia. I mean, it, it used to be for Lithuania, the, the two point Two and a half billion euros trade volume with Russia, in, indeed, is, is quite considerable. It used to be quite considerable. It's now at the level of six or seven billion. I mean, so you see there is a dramatic drop in our uh, trade relationship with Russia for, for obvious reasons. Um, but I can assure you that business community, which used to be making a lot of uh, noise before, saying that accusing government of, you know, oh, your unwise policies and decisions kind of, you know, hurt our interests and we are not able now to trade with Russia and all these things. The policies have to be changed. It used to be like this, you know, for a number of years. I mean, it's not anymore. I mean, people, people realize that, you know, there are things you can, you can trade and bargain and there are things you cannot. And, uh, and we have quite a sad history and some lessons were learned and, uh, and I suppose uh, Lithuania today is, is absolutely different from Lithuania we used to have, say, in the interwar period. Uh, structurally, uh, we are much more resilient at the moment. We are members of EU, members of um, Schengen, members of Euro. Uh, we are members of NATO, which is, again, I mean, uh, very important. And uh, 
we are very much uh, grateful to our American allies who invest a lot into, uh, into the security of Europe, into the security of the Baltic Sea region, into the security of Lithuania. Uh, mm, we are also uh, learning some lessons and increasing our defense budget. Overall, I would say we are in quite a good place. Uh, it doesn't mean that, uh, that Russia uh, doesn't have any, any plans, plans and designs uh, for the future. Uh, we have to stay vigilant. We want a uh, transatlantic link to be strong. Uh, and uh, I believe that uh, American administration in the future might do even more than it's doing at, at the moment to preserve and uh, increase the European and American ties. Europeans have to do more as well. I mean, no doubt about that. Uh, but uh, again, I mean, just to, to, to finish where I started, Lithuania is not for sale. <laughs> Dan, are you willing to comment on uh, part two of this question? I, I have little doubt that the U.S. intelligence capability knows where a good deal, if not, not all, but a good deal of the money that is beneficially owned by kleptocrats, plutocrats, oligarchs, and what we call the minigarchs. Um, if you have a billion or more, you're an oligarch at Kroll. If you have under a billion, you're a minigarch. Um, but it's a matter of what they will do and uh, what action they will take and at what cost. Uh, I also have little doubt that the United States could flatten Pyongyang uh, on a whim and that both the, uh, the U.S. government and the Israeli government could uh, destabilize the Iranian grid uh, if they chose to do so, but it's a matter of at what cost and if they choose to do so. Uh, I'd also remind or recall that many of these countries have their gold uh, 10 stories below the street at um, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Um, and that's another asset that the United States has. So it's really a question of what is worth, as my colleague D.J. Rosenthal was here, who was head of counterterrorism in the White House, and now said, is the juice, what is it, is the, is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, that's the term uh, that, that he taught me. Um, but I'll, I gotta tell you one anecdote, and that is uh, many years ago, um, I was working on a matter in London uh, with a hotelier who knew President Mobutu uh, of Zaire quite well. And he told him a story, I don't know if it's true, that when Mobutu left Zaire, he would always travel, the airplane behind him held the country's gold. And he said, well, why did you take the gold with you? And Mobutu says, well, if I'm out of the country and my government is overthrown, I want the next guy to start where I did, with nothing. So, <laughs> well, anyway, th that's, that's the answer to your question is they can do, it's, it's a matter of, of, of what is expedient and what's worthwhile at the time. Well, that's a great way to, to end this event. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Oh, oh there's one, one more re request for a comment? Okay. Which, where is that gentleman? Okay, all right, now we're done. Well, thank you very much for coming. Hope you found it interesting.